most notes I've ever taken. podcast with your hosts chris jeremy Bree, and jess that's an intro episode 126 i really like that that was nice should i like clip that out and like no nah, keep it. no that was good i uh, like that no that's what i mean like clip it out and start oh, using it. And all the time no you have to do it every time it's a little, we should change it uh, just change it every that's week. gonna be difficult it's a little casey some, but it'll work well that was what i was going for so there's I'm, nothing wrong with that i'm glad i'm you glad i was spot on there uh, so it is episode 126. We've been doing this for a long time. Um, <laughs> not as long as well, some Well, at least 126 weeks. Um, yeah, every week. Almost uh, two and a half years. Every week, a new episode. Uh, no playbacks. No take backsies. <laughs> no backsies. No uh, triple I just stamp, want, wait, double stamp. Before I forget, I just want everybody to know that Peter sends an Irish high five. What for? The Did we do something cool? No, no, no. What no. the fuck is an Irish high five? I don't know. I just made it up. <laughs> So how does he but he it? really does through Is an Irish high five like shoving his ass up in the air and sending it? I don't I'm sure like I'm something will back I'm trying to we'll understand come back. That'll be great. What the difference is between an American high five and an Irish high five. I don't know. There's a Guinness one. in one hand and a I don't know. Why are you high saying five? all Irish are alcoholics? No. <laughs> then why do they have to have a Guinness in their hand? Well, it was just correlated. But we with do know Peter likes Guinness. Maybe he. Maybe it's well, like he's Irish, so maybe it's fudge. Oh, it's Irish awesome. fudge and high five. It's some good Irish cheddar. <laughs> some Jameson. <laughs> How about a good single single malt scotch? Is that oh, a U two CD in one hand and a high five Sim, in the other? That's what, about, what Sim Gill said. What, are, what about some haggis? Wasn't that what that's Sim Gill said? He he no. wanted a single Same malt. Place. Oh, Isn't that what he said, Christopher? That you're ignoring me? I don't, I'm writing Irish high five. Yeah, he said he likes single malts. Oh, nice. I missed that conversation. Um, anyways, he does send a high five and a cheers to everyone. So We love you, Peter. So this is going to be a little bit different episode. There's not going to be a lot of us uh, talking about anything. I'm sure um, extremely grateful. Yeah, I mean, you might actually enjoy these interviews versus <laughs> us. Uh, That's not um, true. We actually have two really fantastic conversations that we've had already tonight, um, but we're going to be playing them after the intro because whatever. Because pod- podcast Because it's a podcast, and I don't know why I have to explain it every time. I just feel like I need to. <laughs> um, no, we're talking tonight to uh, Derek Kitchen, uh, who is running for Jim DeBacchus's old Senate seat in Salt Lake's, uh, one of the Salt Lake districts. They have more than one, don't they? I really don't know. Maybe I should have asked him. We didn't ask that question. Um, but he also <laughs> is the owner and proprietor of uh, Lizzie's Kitchen, which is a fantastic uh, Mediterranean restaurant, and he is a uh, Salt Lake City Council member. Um, uh, Derek's just a good dude. And then uh, we also talk at further length to Sim Gill, the current district attorney for Salt Lake County. Amazing. He's, probably He's running for his third people. term. Yeah, he is running for a third term. Um, and... Uh, Holy shit. Like, like I loved talking to Derek. Um, and he smiled. Did you notice he's like Shireen? Like he just, when you could tell when he was really happy about like that whole last conversation about community, like he was just glowing. And and based on the interaction, I think Derek, Derek would probably agree. Like Sim Gill is one smart, sexy DA. (laughs) I second that. That dude he like the the he's com- so smart. 
I, I can't put the conversation into words. He, no. is, he is very verbose. He's very intelligent. Uh, and, and it's not verbose. Like, it's not like... It's um, not like, it's oh, not, I'm so annoid that somebody's talking. Well, it's, it's not like informative. Our, it's not like George R.R. R. Martin verbose where <laughs> half the shit that you're reading is like the There's dew drops a dew on, on, a, on the blade of grass. No, it's, it's really well thought out. It's very well spoken. Um, there's a lot to take in, but it's... He's so smart. This is a uh, podcast that you should probably not be like doing anything that requires any thought while you're listening to it. You should be like, like when Peter on. mows the lawn. Yeah. yeah you should I mean, be doing something that's pretty. That you can pay attention. Yeah. You really need to listen to these two gentlemen. Um, uh, Derek is district two, by the way. District two. Yeah. Senate district two stays in district two. So I, I, and what I would say is. You know, let's let's say you're listening to this episode and the election's already come and gone. You should still listen to the rest of the show because we don't talk to these guys more than maybe five seconds each about their campaign. We talk to them about the issues, their philosophies of life, their philosophies, issues that are facing Utah, things they've been involved in, and what they're passionate about. The stuff that the the I didn't realize all the stuff that Derek has done with Salt Lake City Council and how deeply involved he's he's been, and some of the stuff that we've talked about at length on this show. Very much. Um, And so homelessness particularly yeah, the, the inland port mm-hmm. stuff. So there's a lot to take in and it's not election specific, but I'm going to say this before we move on to events because we, we don't have time to, to bullshit. Too no dilly dally. Um, get out and vote. And, and by get out and vote, I mean, go to your mailbox or your counter where you put the fucking ballot, open it up, take a pin out, fill it in, lick the back of the envelope and take it to a postal box. Don't forget to sign it. Yeah, sign the back of the envelope and take it to a post office box. Or voting early has started. You can go to a poll and vote early. You can go on election day if you want and vote on election day. And if you're not registered, you can register at the polling station. Yeah, up until the, the end 31st. of the month. The 31st. The 31st. So there's no excuse not to. Um, the number of, of, of voters is, uh, from what we're hearing, is... is quite impressive in comparison to previous elections. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't go no, vote. What, Don't what let it, other people vote for you. What it means is you should go vote. Including so your mom. We've talked about this a lot. The race between McAdams and Love, for example, it's too close to call anywhere. So two months ago, it was being called a toss-up by a lot of organizations, and Mia Love still led in the polls. They're neck and neck. And I'm not talking with margin of error included. I'm yep. talking period and subject. They're neck and neck. That race will be decided by a handful of votes. Proposition two is a huge issue. Medical marijuana. We talk about it with, with Sim at length. Um, there's prop three. There's prop four. So if you are concerned about gerrymandering or crappy redistricting, um, and, and this this isn't a, that's not even a partisan thing. If you are concerned about the fact that you know last time that they redistricted in, in what 2011 I think or 2012 I don't remember when they actually did it. Uh, it was before the 2012 election. But if you're worried about the way that changed and who your representatives were and the fact that oh I was in Jim Matheson's district and suddenly I'm in Chris Stewart's district or you know, something like that. That's what redistricting is all about. And then the last one there, um, that Medicaid. was that three? No, that four? was four. <laughs> That's four. So three is Medicaid uh, and Medicaid and we, expansion. And we talk about all of this at length on episode 124. So you can go back and listen to yeah, that. If you're curious, if you want to hear about judges. If you don't want to read about it. 
you can go to 125 uh, and listen to a brief blurb on on the judges and 125. But these these two conversations, I think, are really, in my opinion, have nothing to do with the election. Like I said, we gave each of them a, a brief moment to to kind of talk about that, but we really wanted to talk about Utah with them, not just the election, not just how they would impact Utah, but Utah as a whole. Uh, and we had some really fantastic conversations. So now we can do events. I'm sorry, you guys don't get to talk about what you did this week. <laughs> That's okay. Good. I have blisters all in my hands to show my hard work. So wedding cake, Let me massive see. wedding cake. I don't. They're all healing. They're all peeling. I was going to say, I don't see any blisters, but I do see the They're one all, peeling there. Yeah, it's gross. Anyways. It's disgusting. What Jess actually did is this has been happening like the whole episode. She's been waiting to show me this and we've been talking for like two hours with people, but she covered her hand in Elmer's glue. <laughs> it really does look like and that. It feels got, like that too, actually. Just, just the fingertip. She's peeled off a little bit. So it looks like she's. It, does, it feels that way. That's gross. That's actually, that's a good reminder. Thank you. Uh, okay. So because we're short on time. I'm just going to limit this down to a couple of events. Um, if you have followed any news in the last 24 hours, um, you'll know that there was a shooting up at the University of Utah campus. Um, former boyfriend, domestic violence issue. Um, on the 26th, there is a group of people, including Val Cameron, who has been on our show with B98.7, are going to be doing a thing called Over the Edge, where they are going to be repelling down the Hilton. It's 18 stories. Um, each of them have, I don't know if they put in money and then they fundraise, but they've been fundraising for this. And the money goes to the Salt Lake Area Family Justice Center, and the YWCA is putting it on as well. That... that Family Justice Center is an amazing organization. It is, absolutely. And they provide, um, uh, it helps both men and women. It's not just women uh, navigate the justice system in uh, sexual assaults, domestic violence situations. Um, They help them set goals. They give them other resources. So this is a huge event. Um, We shared the link today on our Facebook page. Um, Val's still accepting donations, so just help her. She's terrified, and she's going to be... This is not the first. They did the Maverick building um, downtown in the past, but I think this one is bigger, if I remember correctly. It might be more stories, so... When you're 160 versus 180 (laughs) feet, it doesn't really look different. (laughs) Yeah, so she's... So, yeah, just go out and and help her with this. Yeah, it's a really great um, fundraiser. Um, kind of going towards Halloween because there's a million things going on for Halloween. Uh, the day before, Jeremy's birthday is next week. Yay! Yeah. Um, <laughs> and oh, Holly co-host. Yay! Aww. Aww, no. <laughs> Don't be like that. So the Memorial Estates on 6500 South and Redwood Road is doing uh, their first day of the Dead Celebration. So if you kind of want to go out and get a feel of what that holiday is really about, um, they're offering from 3 to 6. They're doing sugar school decorating. Um, of course, they're going to show cocoa. Uh, they'll have some wait, an altar. Wait, 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 wait. Of course they're going to show Coco. Yeah, because they because that's the very Day of the Dead. They show in the cemetery. Have you not seen it? Yes, I've seen oh, it. Then why would you say of course they're going to show Coco? Because it is a good representation of the Day of the Dead. Okay. And spirit animals and things like that. So. I just thought it was weird that you would say, <laughs> of course they're going to What gonna else? Are, give me, what is another movie you the would Little show? The Little Mermaid. That has to do with the Day Kubo of the Dead. Two Strings. 
Really? Kubo and the Two Strings, is that the name of the show? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Mulan? Pocahontas? It's completely all wrong we, cultural. All right. Look, I know. Really? I know. Jason Chaffetz is a fucking douchebag and a racist piece of shit. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, just go take a look at his fucking Twitter or the national news story because he's I'm such pretty a sure he posted it on his Instagram. He's an idiot. He posted it on Twitter, too. Uh, anyways, so that's cool. They're going to have an altar for placing offerings for your family. So, so if what, you want something different, it's not just regular Halloween and you want to celebrate another culture. Here's what I here's what I learned from Coco about Day of the Dead. Because I don't have pictures memorializing my family that have passed away. They're all fucked. Basically, yeah. Is that, Brie, you've got Spanish and Mexican heritage. Is that true? Uh, I don't celebrate <laughs> that. Sorry. You, you also have Irish heritage, but you don't know anything about that. <laughs> well, I don't okay, like Guinness, so, so I think that's the problem. Can you tell me what an Irish high five is? <laughs> is that? <laughs> no. Okay. Candy bar. I, I guess I can't tell you anything about my heritage is all I'm a failure. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I got it. Irish high five. They hold a potato in the hand they hit you with. <laughs> is that? They throw a potato at your head. That's the high five. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they throw five potatoes at you. <laughs> I'm sorry. Can we get back to events? I don't know how this got derailed. I don't either. Um, okay. His name is Chris Birch. <laughs> so <laughs> just so you know, Olio has announced upcoming soap classes all the way through either February or March. If you don't book them now, you they will them. Yes, that is correct. They will sell out. So I'm pointing at Jess like she needs to book a class. <laughs> No, I already got it under control. Don't worry. I talked to Jen this last weekend. So um, red wine, uh, peppermint and charcoal. I don't remember the other ones, but you should just sign up. Um, if you want to just sign up and do one with like a group of people, they do that too. I, I actually recommend that. So if you want to do like a, a fun little, maybe like a ladies night or uh, like a little get together with your friends or a party, you know, people go make like fucking, they do wine and painting shit and paint. Yes. They think that's fun. Go make soap with wine and drink the wine while making the soap. That's a way better experience. Plus the painting, you're never really going to hang that up in your house probably because uh, let's be honest. The soap you know, will use. But the soap you'll use. And it's fantastic soap. And then you'll always go buy oleo soap because you'll be Because you're addicted, hooked. pretty much. Okay, one more thing. I'm not sure how, if it's sold out yet, but Alan uh, at Water Pocket is doing the continuing education class with the University of Utah on Amaro's um, The Bittersweet of Botanical Spirits is what it's called. Uh, you can go to continue.utah.edu for more information. I will link to that because he needs your support and he is an awesome teacher. So. And don't, don't forget that uh, Baba should be out in the uh, Harmon's Grocers. And oh yeah, the Baba chocolate. The Black Lager Bar. Yeah, the Black Lager Bar. It's really good. Um, go get it. It's going to sell out really fast. Oh my gosh, it was so good. Yeah, it's. I think it's going to go fast. So go try and get it. It came out this weekend, I think, right? The first shipment dropped the 13th, and yeah. then this weekend it was the... So this the 20th yeah. or whatever, yeah. Yep. Okay. So, um, yeah, that's events, and uh, <laughs> we're going to get into our interviews now instead of doing any kind of news. With us today, we have uh, Derek Kitchen. Um, Derek Kitchen... Well, he's going to talk about a race that he's running for in the current election, but uh, he also owns Lizzie's Kitchen. I do. I'm going to start there. <laughs> why, why, why did you decide to make a Mediterranean restaurant? 
That's a great question. Um, and thanks for having me. So, uh, we opened up Lizzie's kitchen uh, almost two years ago. It'll be two years in November. And who's we? My partner and I, and, um, I can give you the long story, but the short story first, how about that? Um, we, uh, we started selling hummus at the farmer's market in 2012, began teaching cooking classes and doing a little bit of catering and, uh, slowly worked our way up and, and was, we were able to open up a restaurant two years ago. Um, downtown on 9th South and about 2nd West, which is a, a growing neighborhood here in Salt Lake called Central 9th. And uh, we're, we're one of the first businesses to, to locate to that neighborhood. So we're excited to be there. I got a question about that. So there, in Salt Lake, this is, this is a weird concept to me. So my neighborhood, when I think of my neighborhood, it's huge. It goes from 54th South to 62nd South and roughly Cougar Lane to 56th West. That's a neighborhood to me. When you talk <laughs> neighborhood, so for instance, um, James's house is in the Harvey Milk neighborhood. But three blocks east is Ninth and Ninth, which is referred to as a different neighborhood. And what you're talking about, so in, in Salt Lake proper, for some reason, neighborhoods sprout up around like a two or three block radius. It's that's, like that's that in New York City. We're the new New York. Like, that's what they said on Sex in the City. <laughs> New York. But, but like, I, I'm just trying to understand why that is, because it's not even like, like right here is not super densely populated. Like it's really densely populated if you get like second south and, and state street type of area. But but even here. Yeah, but James gets more trigger treaters than we do. Well, yeah, but he also gets homeless trick or treaters. So, <laughs> so I'm just curious. Do you, do you know why that is? Is that just to? to, to I mean, I'm putting you on the spot. It's not like you well, created you, the concept. Okay, think about it this way: Salt Lake City. We grew up around pretty generic coordinates: mm -hmm. first, south, second, east, third, and third, ninth, and ninth. It's just numbers, right? Um, we always had our downtown. We've had the west side. We've had the east side. We've had University and Sugar House. That's kind of historically where we've been. The avenues. The yeah. avenues, maybe, right? But well, and those feel like neighborhoods because the avenues is big and encompasses a pretty large swath. And but we're growing fast. In fact, Salt Lake City, we're going to double in size in the next 25 years, right? And so you see that growth everywhere you look, you know? And so um, neighborhoods are changing. Um, different corners of our city are blossoming into into new versions of themselves. And so I think that you're starting to see the neighborhoods themselves take ownership over their identity. And, and that's, I think... You know, to answer your question, why we have such different neighborhoods. Like West Side Story without all the singing. <laughs> and I wish like, we had more singing. Well, yeah. Did they stab each other in West Side Story or just dance? Yeah, off? He, oh, no, no, he got stabbed. They're stabbing and singing. Spoiler alert. Well, well, we have the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, right? So, well, they're not. They're Formerly not known the as. Choir. I'm re I refuse to call them anything other than I, that. I don't know how that can, can they? Can we, call, can we do like a dance-off or a, a West Side Story fight between them and like the people that produce over off-Broadway theater? <laughs> that would be awesome. <laughs> My votes on the opera. I'm guessing people. there's not a lot of crossover, so we wouldn't have <laughs> no problems. I mean, there could be. Well, the off-Broadway may show up not sober. And that <laughs> might help. So when you make it into Senate, do you promise, can your campaign promise be more singing? <laughs> more singing. <laughs> I will present you to my husband, who is a great singer. <laughs> I can fulfill that promise. <laughs> so did you grow up in this area? I grew up in the suburbs of Salt Lake. South Jordan is where I'm from. South Jordan. Yeah, which is actually the most righteous city in the state because we have two Mormon temples. <laughs> Whoa. Sure, that is righteous. true. 
<laughs> They're extra righteous. They may not be the most uh, although Mormon, Provo does Kearns now, though. has two Catholic churches. There you go. Right next to each other. Yep. Right down the street from Provo. Provo does have two now. Yeah, turn you back down. Right? That's good to know. Yes. So, but so, uh, well, and South Jordan is home to uh, Temple Lane. Like or church lane, what is it? No, 20, it's temple. Is it's it, temple no, 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 lane. But yeah, but it all, there's like a million freaking churches on that street too. Like twenty no. seventh west. Yes, twenty seventh west. And there's like a church every two blocks, like all through West and South Jordan. Also, if you look at the voter file for that neighborhood, it's all like sixty five and up. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, they're all old. Uh, there are a lot of funerals at those churches. I can tell you. <laughs> like I drive by at a one o'clock on a you know on a on a Tuesday because I work over around there somewhere and. Yep, church is full of cars. That means only one thing on a Tuesday at one. Another old person croaked. Oh, jeez. <laughs> I'm insensitive, aren't I? Um, <laughs> um, so you grew up in the in the Salt Lake area. Have you, you left, or did you just kind of stay here? All right, so I left the church when I was 12, and I always dreamed of leaving Salt Lake. It was the only thing I ever really wanted. Uh, but I got a, a scholarship to the university and landed downtown right out of high school. And it's, you know, Salt Lake City is, you often hear that we're a blue island or we're in our mm-hmm. own bubble. And it's definitely true, at least in my experience, because moving to Salt Lake City was just enough of a cultural break that I got, like I scratched that itch, right? So I never needed to leave the state. Well, and Salt Lake and South Jordan are two different worlds. Worlds apart. And they're, what, 20 minutes, 30 minutes apart? Like so that. I just came from Sandy, so it was about 20, 20 minutes. minutes. So, but it's it's interesting to hear you say that because we've, we've talked about on the show at length um, all the progressive stuff that Salt Lake City's doing. Uh, and it really is kind of a, a blue island, but there will be a point when the city can't contain all the blue and it has to spill out into the rest of the county. And, and we do see that. We see some, some big races uh, occurring through Salt Lake County, especially where that is starting to spill over mm-hmm. into other into other areas outside of the, the city proper. So purple, purple, purple. I think that I think it should be purple. I think it should be spread out evenly. I don't think that it, everything should be run by Democrats or Republicans. I think it should just be a big smush of everybody's and and their ideas. I think that's a fantastic idea. Thank you. I don't think it'll happen, <laughs> unfortunately. A um, girl can dream. So, when did you decide that? When did you decide, Derek, that you were going to run for Jim DeBacchus's seat? First, he had to be on the city council. Well, he didn't have to be, but he chose to be. Yeah, so I've been—I was elected to the city council, Salt Lake City Council, back in 2015. And um, uh, earlier this year, in the early part of 2018, Jim DeBacchus announced his retirement from the Utah State Senate. And uh, he announced his retirement about eight eight or ten days before the filing deadline. And so I had, <laughs> not a, lot of I had a week or so to decide. And uh, so I put a lot of thought into it um, and received an enormous amount of encouragement from, of course, my family and my friends and my supporters, but um, a bunch of strangers and people who are just, you know, political pundits in the area. And so it felt like a natural thing for me to do. And, you know, I've spent the last couple of years uh, serving as the legislative subcommittee chair for the Salt Lake City Council. And so I've been tuned into state level politics pretty intimately. 
And, um, you know, you, you may have heard uh, some of the local political issues surrounding the inland port recently. Mm-hmm. And so I had um, kind of a front row seat on that <laughs> whole. Um, you're, you're one of a few that's been privy to that in, in some sort of entirety. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And we can dive into that, but that's kind of, that's definitely in the weeds. But um, at any rate, that, that we were, literally, we, we were knee deep in the inland port deliberations when I decided to run. And uh, that was definitely what helped me make my decision was realizing that, you know, year after year after year, the Salt Lake City government gets drugged through the mud by the Utah legislature. And this gets back to the issue of Salt Lake City being a blue island and a big old sea of red. But, you know, the Utah legislature is dominated by, you know, you know, crimson red Republicans. And, and so the city's constantly getting a thumb in the eye by the legislature. And, and I realized that the city just needs a good advocate for itself on the Hill. And I think for me coming, you know, having the background of serving in the legislative, legislative body of the city, I can really serve the city well up on the Hill. I also, um, I think I bring a really interesting perspective because I am so young. You know, you look at Utah, we are the fastest growing state in the country. We also happen to be the youngest. The average age in Utah is 29 years old. Well, a third of our a third of our population is is school children. Yeah, and two thirds of the growth is internal, meaning we're yeah. just reproducing faster we're than any other states. <laughs> yeah. But our legislature is old white dudes. So yeah, the demographics don't quite match uh, that of the state, and so I, it's going to be exciting for me to be the only millennial in the Utah State Did- Senate. Do you know what the average age is for the, the Utah House and the Utah Senate? You and Alex can band together and... I hope he wins, yeah. Right? Yeah. You know, I actually don't know the average age um, in the legislature, but it's quite old and it's, it's very like white and it's very male. It's like 65. Oh, yeah. <laughs> With a direct phone line to a certain religious body. So at, at any rate, you know, I think all of those uh, realities kind of played in my, into my decision um, and the fact that I just love policy and I like serving this community and I've picked up a lot of tips and tricks over the last couple of years in my role as a city council member and uh, I'm really eager to um, put on a different face for Salt Lake City in the Utah legislature. We need your voice up there for sure because you're already, you do know this is the dude that sued Utah for uh, gay marriage and basically won because he and his husband are awesome. Well, I mean, you're putting it slightly. It doesn't. It goes beyond the state of Utah. I mean, that lawsuit. We talked about it a lot, but that lawsuit, because of Utah's decision, our legislature's decision to poorly word things, um, <laughs> that that court case and ultimate, you know, move to the Supreme Court and the decision therein made it the law of the land mm-hmm. for you know another couple of years, maybe. Yeah, so it's, what's kind of funny is uh, Utah and the Mormon Church in particular had a hand, of course, in California's Proposition 8, yeah. uh, Hawaii, and of course, Utah and a number of other states around the country. And so because the Mormon Church fought gay marriage so aggressively for the first part of the century, uh, it was kind of uh, spectacular that it came down to Utah as the first domino <laughs> fall, and, right? And the reality, I mean, the, the whole point of it was, is the way the state crafted the constitutional amendment to do it made it a lot easier to challenge and get pushed up through than some of the way other legislation was crafted around the country. And timing is everything as well, because we filed our case um, in March of 2013 in I believe May or June of 2013. So a few months after we mm-hmm. filed our case, the the Defense of Marriage Act, the Windsor case, um, was struck down in the Supreme Court, and we were able to fold their case law into our oh, into awesome. our lawsuit. So, so 
And so it was just a matter of, the, you know, being lucky as well. And, and timing really does matter in that case. Well, it matters in a lot of cases. I mean, so I have a question because a lot of Supreme Court cases, and this is something that most people don't know, but a lot of Supreme Court cases are somewhat planned in terms of the activity that occurs to get that case to move up through the court system. That's planned. So Rosa Parks, we all think of her as, a, and she, she is a great, you know, civil liberties person and civil rights person, but her actions on the bus were somewhat planned. It wasn't happenstance that she got on that bus and she was asked to move and that suddenly the there was attorneys and people already there to fight for her. So that's not the case all the time, but that is the case a lot of times. Same thing for Loving in Virginia. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the, the interracial marriage case for sure. And so, you know, the civil, civil rights attorneys and advocates are always looking for opportunities to take advantage of brand new case law as it reveals itself. And so, yeah, a lot of these cases are absolutely uh, strategically put together. But your situation, I'm guessing, was not in terms of the decision, or, or was it? Well, for, for my partner and I, it was all about, you know, um, making a stand. We never, I was just mentioning this before we went live, but, you know, I never thought that this case would be, would end up the way it did. Uh, we were just as surprised as anybody else, <laughs> to be honest with you. Uh, well, for, yeah. For us, it was just making a, making a stand. And, and um, you know, we, you know, I was 22, 23, and about, you know, I wanted to start a family. And, and do all the things that I imagined as a kid, right? So, and I just, I didn't think that me being a queer man should get in the way of that. And so for us, it was about, you know, advocating for ourselves and just putting ourselves out there. Um, and then when we ended up winning, we were shocked, to be honest with you. And I think that I, I want to talk, I know we're going to talk a little bit about your, your campaign, but I, I, this is, this is a chance to talk about a, a subject that, that is, um, super real and super important right now. Um, and what a lot of people don't understand, you know, those that, that aren't so open to, to gay marriage is it's not about religion, right? So marriage between two people that love each other, one of the, one of the real benefits and, and the reason marriage is, is not a religious institution and needs to be something that's separated is there's a lot of legal stuff that goes on when you're married. Aside from the financial stuff with, with taxes and, and credit applications and, and buying insurance. homes and insurance, it's being able to, if your partner tomorrow gets hit by a bus, being able to make life-altering decisions in, in terms of his care. Those those are things that are, are real or consequences. Or even just go and be with him and not have someone deny mm -hmm. deny that right. And it's a, It was especially important, important for us because uh, my partner is from the Middle East, doesn't have family here. Um, and always kind of felt like uh, a little bit of an outcast just because, you know, he grew up, he came of age, you know, in the early 2000s. This was right after we went to war with Iraq, right? And and I think that there was a lot of um, internalized fear that he carries about being a, an, um, a Middle Eastern immigrant in the United States. And so for, yeah, for, yeah. for, for he and I, it was all about protecting one another and, and being there for each other. And we needed the legal protection that marriage provided. And so that's why it was especially important for us and many other couples out there, to be honest, as well. His name is Muhammad, and I think that also factors into his <laughs> oh, internal, yeah, internalization. I'd be, I'd be a little worried yeah. if that was me, given the landscape lately. Um, so enough about uh, gay marriage. As, as important as that is, I'm, I'm actually curious. So Jim DeBacchus, and we've talked to him on the show about a, about a year ago, maybe a little more than that. Um, it always yeah, seems like a year ago. We always say that a year ago. And then we look it up. Oh, three months. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was a while. It was a while. It was last summer. Um, 
I don't know. Anyway, um, when we talked to Jim, one of the things that, that he was pretty adamant about, and one of the things that you've seen through his time in the, the state Senate is he was always that voice. He never really got legislation patch, passed. In fact, he, he told us in our interview, look, if I want something to pass, I don't sponsor it because my stuff's not going to pass. I'm not going to back down because we need that extreme voice in, in, in state government because it doesn't exist because too many Democrats roll over and, and play the game and, and don't actually try to get things passed and they don't speak up for their constituents. Well, they play the game to get things passed. Yeah, so I guess that's my question for you is, you know, what, what kind of role are you looking to play? Are you looking to replace Jim as that crazy left-wing voice? Are you going to be out trying marijuana? <laughs> On video. Well, he didn't have to worry about anything now. So. But are you going to be that that crazy voice, or are you going to be the type of guy that, that goes in and, and actively plays the game to get legislation passed for your district? Well, I think why I have so much support in this district is because of my time so far in the city council. And, and I've had a really successful tenure so far. Um, I've you know followed through on a, a number of the, the pieces of legislation locally that I've advocated for, from homelessness to affordable housing. Um, and, you know, local neighborhood development and things of that nature. And so I, I think uh, the voters are anticipating that I will just amplify that effort at the state level. And so that doesn't really match Jim's style necessarily. Um, and so I guess to answer your question in a nutshell, no, I won't be Jim DeBacchus. There will always be a place for somebody like him. And, and I guarantee you, he will not go anywhere. He will still be out there. Um, and uh, but, you know, he and I have a totally different style. Um, we we uh, we we cut our teeth in different times in the state of Utah. Right. So he came out as a gay man in the 80s, you know, watched all of his friends drop dead from HIV AIDS and uh, was up against uh, a really um, aggressive, dominant culture. I had the opposite experience. Right. Uh, so I think uh, for me, you know, I have uh, I have a different worldview. I have a different style for sure. If I'm not going to be productive in this in the state Senate, there's no reason for me to be there. So uh, I think that you'll see me be uh, effective in a different capacity than Jim because he was he was quite effective um, at at raising the raising important issues and and I hope to uh, to incorporate some of that for sure. So what would you say then is is what would you say are maybe the the top three things that you're really looking to do with with the the state legislature with this with the senate in particular okay so this is a four-year term right if i'm elected this year i'll take office in january of 2019 we have the redistricting effort 2021 that's going to be a huge focus of mine um, affordable housing in the state of utah is critical at all levels so i've had some successes so far on the city council and i intend to carry that information and knowledge to the state senate uh, Utah is growing fast, as we've already mentioned, but Salt Lake County in particular has an incredibly tight housing market, 2.5% vacancy rate. So even if we do nothing, it's going to continue to tighten as we grow. So housing is going to be a huge point for me and just protecting the work that we've done so far in homelessness. And so that means, of course, making sure that the new shelters are successful and, uh, and running smoothly, uh, but also making sure that we have the services available. So that includes mental health care, substance abuse treatment, um, and ongoing just a adequate services for those who are living on the edge. Speaking of those shelters, aren't isn't one or two of them already operational? So they should be operational come uh, June of this next year, 2019. I, I'd be really interested to see the kind of change that occurs and, and if neighbors 
neighborhoods that they're being built in actually notice them once they get going? I can speak from experience. So before I actually got elected to the city council, they opened up the Volunteers of America Youth Resource Center right next to my house over on 9th South. And so that actually has acted as a bit of a template for the new resource centers. Um, and so uh, that's been operational for a few years now. And, you know, there are impacts. Don't get me wrong. There will be impacts to neighborhoods, but there are ways to mitigate the impacts. And uh, and I think that this has been, again, a, a great case study for us in that capacity. And so we've, we've been able to learn from the VOA Youth Resource Center um, and uh, incorporate some of those best practices into the new model. Uh, and so, yeah, I think that you're going to see a much different experience than what we currently have over in the Rio Grande uh, area where our current homeless shelter is. Well, so. we've, we've talked about this before. Chris has mentioned it, that, you know, the way Rio Grande does it right now, you have a huge mass of people there. The way these smaller, more focused shelters are, it's not as huge of a mass of people. So you're not going to have that same big, huge impact as you, as people seem to think that you would have. What do you say to those people who have kind of fought having it in their neighborhoods? Because I have to admit, you know, there is a part of me as a parent that says, do I really want the men's homeless shelter in my neighborhood when I have two teenage daughters? But then, you know, the logical side of me says, it's your community and it's your people and they need to be somewhere. So how do you try and assuage people's you know, feeling these mixed feelings or just out and out. I don't want it in my neighborhood. It's got to be somewhere else. Well, where, where do we put these people? They're still people. What do, what do we do? Because I know that there was a lot of outcry with. Yeah. And a lot of fear for sure. So, you know, I think what you mentioned is really important. Uh, our current shelter model is not working because it's a one size fits all, right? So whether you are a domestic violence victim, you're exiting prison, you're a homeless youth, you're a veteran, you all go to the same shelter. And what we've learned over, you know, all of our research is that we can better fold people back into our community if you give them the individualized service and treatment. So we have a women's shelter, we have a youth shelter, we have a men's shelter, we have a family shelter. So we're going to have a series of different homeless shelters. And so what we're going to find is that people are going to have a much better experience and get the kind of um, attention that they need in order to be actually re rehabilitated. So there's a number of components that come into the new model, um, but one thing that's really exciting is that we have all the service providers from the public side and the private side more or less working together and sharing information, and they've all agreed on a, a set of outcomes that they will redirect all of their funding toward. And so this is, it's like turning a big ship, right? It takes time for it to shake out, but what we're going to see in the long run um, is a much more efficient and um, effective model, and we're going to be focused on outcomes. Cute dog, by the way. He is cute, huh? That's Sebastian. Sebastian's great. <laughs> so, you He's know, our mascot. I, I think it's just important to note that when it comes to homelessness, the outcomes really matter. And so we're really focused on outcomes and getting people back into the productive side of society. And, uh, and of course, there's going to be growing pains along the way, and neighborhoods are going to have to support us. Um, but, you know, we're going to need to build other shelters in other parts of the state as well. So, you know, people who are homeless today and down at the Rio Grande shelter, they come from St. George, they come from Logan, they come from every corner of the state of Utah. And so what's really important is that the Salt Lake City shelters, the new ones, are as successful as possible because we will need to replicate them in other neighborhoods in the future. 
Good answer, Derek. One of the things that you said, I, I think, is an important part of the homeless problem, which is affordable housing. Like you said, we have we have like 2.9% uh, availability, which is... Super tight. Yeah, Not only is it super tight, but it also means that finding a place for rent in Salt Lake City, like 15, 20 years ago, renting an apartment, I could get a 750-square-foot apartment for 500 bucks a month. And I could do that on a pretty shitty income and, and still be able to live. Now, that same 750-square-foot apartment is probably going to cost you, what, 1500 bucks mm-hmm. a month. Yeah, so I mean, this is basic supply and demand economics we're talking about, right? So tight supply and a growing a growing demand, and so we've got to build. We have to build. And I think some of the successful stuff that I've seen in Salt Lake City that is that is starting to happen is like when they uh, the the coffee shop and police station that they're tearing down to put up that mixed use and the smaller oh yeah size housing old uh, roasting company oh, oh yeah uh-huh. company. by my work the one around the yeah, corner like that that to me is a successful way I mean we don't know yet because it's not done but that seems like a, a a way to get people off the streets as well providing them you know a place it's not very big it's a studio apartment but a studio apartment that's affordable is better than the, the shelter streets. absolutely gives you a permanent address gives you a a, a mailing address allows you to get a job allows you to maintain a well, job what a lot of people f- don't realize is a, there are a fair amount of homeless people who are not homeless by choice yeah. and who want to improve their or situation or because they're drug addicts or yeah they want to improve their situation. Yeah. they want to get back into a home they want to work they're looking for that and this is just that little nudge that they need to get them back on track. A lot of times you can't even get a job if you don't have an address. An address and you're right. in this terrible spiral of, I can't get a place to live because I don't have money and I can't get money because well, I don't have a place to live. And if a potential employer sees the Rio Grande address. <laughs> <laughs> it's true though. Because I mean, they do get address. They, the, the, the road home actually does provide them with those things like a mailbox that mm-hmm. they can go to and, and put down as an address. But the problem is employers aren't done and they see that and they go, I don't really want someone that's homeless working here because I don't know what's going to happen. Baskin Robbins. Baskin <laughs> Robbins always knows. <laughs> but even if somebody's been out of the workforce for a number of years, yeah, it's going to be hard for tough. them to get back into a job, right? Yeah. When you look at a resume and you go, well, what did you do the last five years? And and you can't give an answer of, of something good, then they're going to go, hmm, yeah, whatever. We're not, not going to call you at all or we're not going to call you back. Yeah, so it's a tough situation. So it's a really tough nut to crack, but we're making strides. Yep. I think that if we look back five, five years from now, it'll all be worth it. I think so. I think I, I think the biggest complaint that I've heard, and and this is a this is a complaint. We'll talk about the the inland port in a similar light. One of the biggest complaints was how it was done. Yeah. So it was essentially a lot of people felt like it was just thrust on these neighborhoods. Like you don't get a choice here. Here you go. And, and I don't know, cause I don't live in Salt Lake city. Um, you know, were there council meetings, open hearings that no one just attended because that to me seems like probably what happened. Um, but with the inland port, a lot of that stuff was done kind of behind closed doors. Uh, so this is again, an example of the legislature <laughs> yeah, kind of telling yeah. Salt Lake city how it's going to be. And we better just live with it or else. And so, 
the legislature, um, you know, the city, for instance, knew about two years ago that the legislature was going to be moving forward with this inland port. And so Salt Lake City, not, not only through our planning department and economic development, but the redevelopment agency as well. We all went out there. We master planned it. We put together a, a long range plan for the neighbor, for the area, uh, which included shipping, distribution and importing and things of that nature. Um, and the legislature at the 11th hour of the 2018 session came in and um, basically took everything. You know, they took our taxing authority. They took uh, 20 or 22 percent of Salt Lake City jurisdiction. Yeah. Um, oh, right now we're going to take this big chunk of land. And so um, and, you know, part of it was bad politicking on behalf of the city, for sure. Um, but we were able the city council was able to to lead out later earlier this summer um, and you know, get a better shake out of a bad deal, so to speak. And, um, and I think we were able to, to fold in some measures of transparency and accountability into the inland port bill. Now there will be, um, cleanup efforts that need to take place going forward for sure. Uh, but I think that what we have now is much better than what we were given in the January, February session. He's, he's distracted by you, Jess. Mm, well, good, because I have a question <laughs> if we're done talking about inland port. Well, I, I actually did want to ask Darren. We've kind of tried to describe this for, for people, but a lot of people don't even know what the hell an inland port is. They're like, what what, what the hell is that? Can that's because we don't have a because you, because you've been involved in <laughs> Well, that's why it's called it, inland. <laughs> I, can you give like a like a 50,000-foot overview for someone who would have no idea what that is? So we can all acknowledge that the Amazon effect of our global commerce is changing us, right? And so what that means is that we're importing and, you know, we're, we're finding goods from all over the world at faster and faster rates. So what you look at right now over on the West Coast, off the coast of Portland or, or Long Beach or Los Angeles is shipping containers coming from Southeast Asia that are out there anywhere between six and 10 weeks because the ports are so backed up. So the idea here is that we might be able to unload those containers um, onto a truck or a train and bring them into Salt Lake City where we can decommission, add value, and distribute from here. So it's an enormous economic development opportunity. And I understand why the legislature might want something like that. Uh, but I do believe that the way it was uh, uh, brought together was probably not in the best interest of the voters or of transparency. And so, you know, I think that what we were able to get in our negotiations this summer was something better. Uh, but again, we're going to need to clean it up in the years to come um, as this begins to take shape um, as, as, a, as an actual inland port. I also do think that we have an opportunity to really set the standard for best practices uh, from an environmental and development standpoint as well. So this is an incredibly sensitive part of land. It's, oh, yeah. you know, it's right next to the Great Salt Lake. It's just west of the the airport. So from a, an ecological standpoint, there's a lot of sensitivity out there that we need to be paying reverence well, to. Well, it's been a protected wetlands for a long time. And so we, we can consider things like dark sky issues. We can consider the riparian corridor. We need to we need to look at the landscaping overlay because, you know, uh, with climate change, who knows what's going to happen out here. So we need to make sure that all the critical infrastructure are built with, uh, with resilience. Right. And so I think that we do have an opportunity to really set environmental best practices for how you can do economic development while also paying, uh, you know, uh, respect to, to our current situation in the future with regard to climate change. And so I, I'm hopeful about the inland port. Of course, it's not going to be perfect, but, but I do think that that with good advocates up there on the Hill, we can actually get something positive out of it. 
It doesn't have to do with the uh, inland part. Uh, Are we I'm done? Not, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I, I, I think it's help. I think it's helpful because I don't think a lot of people even know when, in just talking to people generally, they don't actually know what an inland port is. So sure. that, that was actually a really good description of, of what it is. Mm -hmm. And it makes ge uh, geographic sense as well because Salt Lake City is perfectly located. We have I-15 and I-80 mm -hmm. that right. cross right here. Of course, the air, the railroads. But in addition to that, in the year 2020, so a year and a half from now, we're going to have the uh, first net positive airport, and it's going to likely be the only brand new airport brand new build airport in this century yeah, in the United that's, States. That's, that's wow. actually crazy to think about. Like there are, and one of the things to consider with the airport, we don't have, we haven't really talked about the airport, but because nothing's been built this century, think of all the changes airports have made in the way they, they operate and the way they're designed since nine 11. Well, this airport is designed with that in mind. Mm-hmm. So just think about how much better this airport's going to be. I mean, and and, and environmental concerns as yeah, well. So yeah. it's going to be, there's going to be a lot of passive elements. So you're going to not need to turn on the light switch in a lot of areas of the airport, for instance. It's just really smartly designed. And I'm very proud of, this is a city project. The, the city of Salt Lake owns the airport. So I've been intimately involved with this project as well. And it's fantastic. As soon as it opens or gets close to opening, I encourage you to take a tour. I'm super excited. For sure. For they okay. kind of did a little one with Fox yesterday, Fox. 13. It looks awesome. Yeah. Is it getting really close? It is getting close. I don't yeah. fly as much as I used to, so. It's cool. Is it my turn? Yeah. 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 Perfect. What's your, your non-inland yeah. part question? So, um, as he said, Laziz has a booth at the farmer's market, and a few weeks ago I stopped by, because he wasn't there, and I, I grilled his employees, and I was like, what do you really want to know about Derek? And what I learned is that he is so transparent with his employees that they always have a great conversation going that they were like, we know everything. <laughs> like, there isn't anything, like, you know. like, he's got a mole on <laughs> Basically. No, but they're so passionate about working for Derek and uh, the gentleman that is there in the morning. Sorry, his name again? Chris. Chris. Um, he wanted me to ask you about your involvement with the city council and your restaurant and how it brings a community together because he just loves that about you and that is so important to you. So at the beginning of the program, we talked a little bit about neighborhood names and, and what makes an identity, right? So the neighborhood Central Ninth, where my restaurant is located, uh, was um, it's part of the redevelopment agency of Salt Lake City, which their mission is to go into blighted or underdeveloped neighborhoods, um, capture the tax increment, and reinvest it in the area. And so Central Ninth is an RDA project area. And so in that area, we've been able to kind of long-range master plan. We built a train stop right there on the corner of Ninth South and 2nd West. Um, and we went through and strategically purchased properties as a city and then started to uh, either sell them off or give them away to community organizations that kind of helped us create uh, the city, the neighborhood that we wanted. So you have a, a small grocery store, you have a little neighborhood bar, you have a couple restaurants, you have a hair salon, coffee shop, soon Spy Hop, which is a, um, an after school uh, resource for a tech and um, oh, cool. like video and, and radio uh, tech program for kids. Um, a bunch of housing is going into the neighborhood, both affordable and market rate. And so for us, it was an opportunity to, to look at a neighborhood from uh, you know a 30,000 foot level and, and imagine what, what needs to 
that take place in order for this neighborhood to be more healthy. Um, and so I think that over the last 10 years, the city has really taken uh, um, a, a great initiative to, to not only uh, add all the elements of a good, healthy neighborhood, but to pull the community together. And so part of it is that we did some massive rezoning um, so that, you know, you could have a little bit more of a progressive land use policy in place, but also we had the, tra the track stop there so you could get to this neighborhood without needing a car. Um, and then we have all these local businesses. Every business in that neighborhood is local. And so I think it's really important to note that the local business component, because if you have $1 and you go to a Starbucks for a coffee, only 12 cents on that dollar is going to recirculate in the neighborhood or in the community. But if you go to a local coffee shop, 53 cents on that dollar is going to recirculate. So the, the, the economic value of buying local and supporting local is, 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 um, amazing. And so I think that this neighborhood in particular is an, a great example of that. Well, and we, I mean, we talk about buying local and supporting local all the time. And that, that is, if not. Because food else, brings like, people together. Well, that's a huge resounding reason to do it. And just in terms of, of real economical reasons that, that, that are quantifiable. And, and I have to say this, like listening to you talk, I, while I'm not a resident of Salt Lake City, um, when we talk about people voting in elections um, and, and, and voting in elections because your vote at the local level matters, look, Mitt Romney's probably going to win the Senate race. Sorry, Jenny. It's just his, his numbers are too good. He's in a very red state. It's going to be hard for you to beat him. But when you vote for a guy like Derek, uh, you're able to really make change. When you put people on your city council that have a vision that lines up with, with what you believe in, they're the ones that are going to actually impact your life because the state legislature, yeah, they're going to put their nose in when it comes to something like the inland port, but your day-to-day life is probably not super affected by the inland port. Yeah. Your day-to-day -day life is super affected by what businesses get put in a neighborhood nearby, what housing gets built near you, how the Rio Grande is split up and pushed out into a bunch of neighborhoods to try and fix the problem. That's the kind of stuff that happens at the local level, and that's why you need to get out and vote. Absolutely. Oh, oh, oh. And local elections have some of the lowest turnout as well. They it's do. unfortunate because yeah, it has the highest impact. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and, and, and again, we make it really easy in Utah. You should already have your ballot. If you don't, go to the polling place. Um, but Early voting started voting. today. Yeah. So, so, so go to a polling station and, and cast your vote. It's super important. And if you need more info, vote.utah.gov. Uh, is probably the best site that you can go to uh, figure out who the candidates are. And they just made a new one for the judges, too. Judges.utah.gov. Yep. Oh, really? Nice. Yeah, it's awesome. So, so if you look at your ballot, uh, it's really kind of confusing when you look at the judges because you don't know any <laughs> of these names. There's no partisan affiliation next to them. Which is good. Yeah, well, and we, we, like, we actually, if you listen to, was it last week's episode or two weeks two ago? Weeks ago? Two weeks ago. Two weeks ago. We actually talked in detail about the judges. Uh, that you um, need to read about them. And, and we didn't really talk in high detail because this is the first year in a while that they've all been basically, un in fact, they were all unanimously approved by the, the certification the body, board yeah. or whatever body it is that does it. And they all had fairly high marks, yeah. unlike, you know, two years ago when there was one that everyone was like, yeah, she needs to go. And, and everybody voted, voted her back. <laughs> so my, my general rule of thumb is that you look at the ratings and anybody that has a 95% or so or higher is worth retaining. Right. Over oh, all. man, there's two in Utah County that are toast then. Well, yeah. They're like 86%. No, because everybody will just vote them in. Well, ultimately with <laughs> judges. I mean, I mean, I don't know a lot about what's going on, you know. So, I mean, I, mean, I, I feel like I'm quite informed on the issues, but... 
you know, I don't know all the cases that these judges have seen, and so it's, it's really hard. You have to look at the, the recommendation. Exactly. They're important. I mean, they're an important part of, of the legal system, and so if if their peers don't think that they're doing a good job, and, and you can read in depth. I mean, it's not like it's a little teeny tiny paragraph. A lot of times, it's a, it's a it's report. It's usually like a full page. There's yeah. a rating. I mean, it, you can look at cases. It's, it's actually kind of interesting. We, a couple of years ago when my daughter turned 18, we actually really went into depth and talked to her about it. Um, that was the year that, that the one judge we thought, oh, there's no way she'll make it back in. And then she did. But it's really important because just like we talked about with with your local um, representatives, your judges are making decisions on cases that happen here in Utah. And if you read about it and they're not looking at things the way you really think that they should be, this is your opportunity to have some effect on that. If if you don't if they're not being fair because of race and their own peers don't think that, maybe they shouldn't be hearing cases anymore. Well, I, I, I see that you have the uh, affable district attorney up next, and he probably has an opinion <laughs> on this. <laughs> he, he doesn't want to talk about it. No. He's like, I don't want to talk about the judges because I have to deal with them. <laughs> well, and the last thing I would say about judges, and it goes along with what Brie was saying, you know, th those reports, those are those are done by their peers. They're not done by a, a partisan committee. It is it is rankings based off of other judges and, and other attorneys in the state and how they view um, their decisions. And it's not how they do view their decisions that they agree or disagree with them, um, because that's 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 in a lot of cases very subjective. It's much more objective in. You know, it, does this person run a good court? Do they are they prepared? Yeah. Not are they way out, you know, do they, do they, you know, do 90% of their stuff on the slightly left side? Yeah. That, that's not how these that's, committees yeah. are run. They're not asking questions like that. That being said, one thing to pay attention to is if, if, a, if a decision happens over a couple of the course of a couple of years, the hard thing with judges is remembering who was that judge a year and a half ago that decided that, you know, uh, I should chastise Salt Lake City or Salt Lake, the state of Salt, state of Salt Lake, the state of Utah <laughs> for, for the activity with, with rubies. Like, can you remember the judge that did that? Who, who said, you know, sorry, the taxpayers are suffering because the legislature of Utah is a bunch of idiots and past unconstitutional legislation, you know, maybe you don't agree with that judge. I bet you can't tell me who it was. And he was all over the papers for three days. Mm -hmm. But that that's that's the point with judges. And for me, the less you hear about a judge's name, probably the better of a judge they are. Yeah. So, Derek, uh, real quick, I'm going to ask you. Uh, we to warned give you. A, Have you been thinking? <laughs> so, the first thing I'm going to ask you is just a quick blurb on on uh, why people should vote for you and, and what district you're running for, um, and then we'll ask you the last question. Well, I appreciate that opportunity. So, uh, you know, I mentioned it earlier. This, the community here is growing incredibly fast, um, and if you look at the demographics of our legislature, they don't necessarily align with the direction of our community. And so I'm, I'm looking to become the youngest state senator um, in the body. And so I think that's an important component when you consider that, that Salt Lake County is going to double in size in the next 25 years. In this race, I'm the only one that has legislative experience coming from the Salt Lake City Council. And I've had my thumb on issues important to this community from housing and homelessness to air quality and transit. And so I'm eager to amplify that message at the state level. And so I hope that the voters give me an opportunity to serve them for the next four years. Okay, now something that's probably not rehearsed at all. 
We ask every guest this. So you, <laughs> you live you live in in Salt Lake, yep. um, and you grew up in Utah, um, and you chose to stay here yep. um, thanks to Salt Lake City. <laughs> What's one thing that you would tell someone visiting the state that they should do before they left? Hmm. Well, there's a couple things. I'm a big fan of the arts and cultural uh, side of Salt Lake City. Uh, so over in the Granary District, we have a really great mural program that's worth checking out. Um, also, some amazing breweries and brew pubs. So a lot of really small craft. Uh, high quality brew pubs so definitely go over to the granary area and check that out grab a cocktail at water witch some of the best cocktails in in the country honestly come out of salt lake city i've done a fair amount of travel and it's amazing the quality of booze that you can find in salt lake city <laughs> so so that's one that's one answer i also think that for anybody who comes here and makes it to temple square you know whether you're lds or not mormon or not it's important to go into the visitor side and check out space jesus i think <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard of him referred to as that, but that's very true. Yeah, Space Jesus, I think, is, is great for Instagram. So you should definitely go check that out. <laughs> great for Instagram. So do you, do they, like, do they, because they, they'll kick you out of there if, if they don't like what you're doing. If you were like, self, if I you think were it's like all about selfie, being respectful, right? Yeah. So, you, so you can go in and check out this cultural experience and also be very respectful, but right? Not like, not like, oh, I yeah. like selfie pose. Well, I think you could probably do a selfie as long head. as you weren't doing something obscene. I think. But, but I, you know, I, I have friends from all over that come and visit me, and I always take them to Temple Square and talk to them about the history of the of the LDS Church, and uh, and they always get. And a then kick. you surprise them at the end with space Jesus. Yeah, it, it's 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 they love it. So. <laughs> what is it? I mean, it's an important it's it's an important part of our history, whether or not you agree with the LDS religion uh, or the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints. I don't know. I don't have to say their name that way. Um, but whether or not you agree with their religion, their their history is so intimately tied in with the state of Utah. And and honestly, their present is so intimately tied in with the present of the state of Utah that you can't talk about Utah without talking about them. It's a uniquely American story. It really is. It really is. Well, thanks a lot for, for joining us, Derek. How, how can people... First off, where's your restaurant? Because I don't know if a lot of people know how good of food there is at, at your restaurant. The best hummus you'll ever have. I love it. I love so it. Lizzie's Kitchen is on 9th South and 140 West, 9th South and Jefferson Street. Um, and in Salt Lake City, 9th South was recently renamed to Harvey Milk Boulevard. So we're Harvey Milk Boulevard and Jefferson. Um, <laughs> I like that you said that with like a little wanna, bit of pizzazz. I just want to throw that on. I love that. I just want to throw this out that he is part of the city council. That's who kind of does some of that. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's really proud of that one. <laughs> and how can people get a hold of you? Uh, uh, social media is great. Uh, Facebook, Instagram. My, I have a website, DerekKitchen.com, uh, or find me at the farmer's market some Saturdays. Not for now. It's over. It is over, but with the winter market starts in two weeks. So. And, and you'll are, be there? They are there. Some days, yeah. Fantastic. So, sometimes they're there when the heroin dealers are a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> thanks so much for joining us. Hey, today. thanks for having Thank me. You. All right. With us, uh, we also have today uh, Sim Gill. Uh, Sim Gill is... Uh, Currently, the Salt Lake District Attorney and uh, running for re-election. Yes. Welcome. Thank you so much. Did you always want to be a DA? You know, in a, in a strange way, yeah, I, I did. Uh, it, it was something that I came about in a really weird way. And, um, you know, I was born in India, and my father emigrated in 1969. We came over in 1971. And so there was this two-year period when my father had emigrated, and I was living with my mother and my brother at my uncle. 
And so when I was a little boy, uh, you know, in India, there was, there's, there was this gentleman who used to come and clean our house and he cleaned the neighbor's house and different things. And he was really a kindly old man and he was very kind to me and uh, very generous to me and I really enjoyed his company. And one day there was this huge ruckus outside and, uh, and uh, there was this crowd gathering out in the street there and this poor chap had been pulled out and there were about three or four police officers with these long bamboo sticks and they were just wailing on him. And, uh, and because some jewelry had come up missing in this house that he was cleaning and I saw him just kind of curl up into a ball and beg for mercy and and uh, begged them to stop. And I remembered uh, talking to my uncle and saying, what's going on? What's going on? And uh, he said, well, uh, thefts occurred and there's a crime that's occurred and they're trying to find the truth. And then I'm going, and I'm trying to understand this. And, God, they, and I remember him talking that they're trying to find the truth and they're trying to get this. And I go, why, why? Because somebody needs to be held accountable and they're going to get this to a prosecutor or whatever. And I remember him explaining this. And as a little boy watching that and uh, so I see this guy, he's curled up and he's begging for mercy. He's professing his innocence and then he is admitting to everything so they can stop. And then you fast forward about three, four months and you come to find out that he really hadn't stolen anything. And that image stuck in my mind uh, and is always stuck in my mind. And and what I sort of understood from that and as I thought about it more as I came uh, stateside is that there was incredible power that was given uh, to people. And with that power, there was a potential for a lot of abuse. And that image never left me. And uh, so, you know, people might think, well, that should make you a defense attorney, not a prosecutor. Yeah, that was going to be uh, my question. Right, right. Why, did, why not go into public defense? Because, because I think that the ideals that we live by are a proactive affirmative obligation. And then if you're a prosecutor, then you actually are an agent of change where you adhere to those ideals that we believe in as a nation, as a people. And so that is not something that you come to secondarily, but that's something we should be embracing in an affirmative fashion. So that was really what always stuck in the back of my head. And as I sort of went through my sort of circuitous path, through education, that is where I ended up. And that really, so, you know, to answer your question, that's something that's stuck with me from my childhood. And that's something that uh, I have never forgotten. And sometimes I've said that the best political education that I've ever gotten was that I was born in a third world country because I know what poverty feels like. I know what injustice does to the, uh, to a dignity of a soul and a person and what corruption does to the soul of a community. And and we are so lucky in this country that uh, that we have the opportunity to be the authors of our own destiny and change in the participatory democracy that we participate in. That uh, that is something that we forget. And so, to me, it's an affirmative obligation that uh, and a responsibility that I embrace. So that's really how I kind of always knew that I would end up in some aspect of that. That's I mean that's impressive. There's not a lot of people that know. That you know, from from that early of an age, this is what I want to do, uh, or or this is the the avenue I want to pursue. Whether or not it, it meant you know at seven years old that you knew you wanted to be a district attorney. I, 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 well, I, I was ten years of age, and I knew I knew what suffering and I knew what injustice was. I think as children, uh, we're actually quite perceptive. I don't I don't think we fully appreciate that depth of understanding small children have about the world around them. And, um, 
you know, there are, there are experiences that I have from my childhood, right? I, I remember also just looking at somebody, there's incredible poverty. And, uh, and, you know, when you're in a crowded place and people don't realize how crowded India is as a place, and uh, you can see people, you know, who are sitting on the street, who are homeless and uh, a family, and, and you see a parent, a, 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 a spouse and a child or a family, and there's thousands of people walking around them and the ability to actually create that private space where they retain a sense of dignity is incredible things to watch. And I think we are witnesses as human beings to a lot of those kind of things, and we don't give them the kind of value and power they have in our lives. And so, so being coming from that part of the world, it gave me a very different perspective. And sometimes I also say it like, uh, you know, my, my parents or we as immigrants, we, we didn't come here to be Democrats or Republicans. We came here to be Americans and the ideals that this nation represents as a beacon to the rest of the world, right? Ideals that transcend our politics like justice, fairness, equality, truth. And these ideals are really what inform our um, body politic. It, def it defines at the best of us at the moment who we are. And it is those ideals that draw immigrants to this country. So when we think about all the different immigrants who are coming here and we talk about economics and we talk about freedom, but it's really those things. And, uh, and those are the best defining things that we have. And it's only when you are from another part of the world where you don't have that, you see the vast richness of what is possible here. That's why the American experiment, uh, experiment is so unique and so powerful. And also, unfortunately, so apathetic sometimes. And that's the tragedy of this incredible thing that we called America. I, I just got to say, you're so well composed and in, in so well spoken. I don't know how you could just be a district attorney and not run for <laughs> another public office. <laughs> well, I think, I, you know, look, I think that all of us, and I don't care who you are, all of us have, I think, a moral responsibility to think about the impact we can make in our community. And sometimes I think we sometimes think, oh, you've got to run for a political office in order to do that. I think that the on a human basis, how we interact, how we model for our children, how we model for other people, how we interact, the when you're walking down the street and you see that homeless person who nobody wants to make eye contact with, but you do, and you acknowledge their dignity in front of you, those are the opportunities to serve your community. Sometimes we do it in the context of an elected office, or more importantly, we do it as citizens. So I'm really uh, intrigued by the idea of what citizenship really means. So I think all of us have our own uh, sort of path to follow, and but all of us co-equally contribute to the fabric of what we could define as our uh, society. So elected office is one way, but more is done on a daily basis by citizens in those small acts of kindnesses that we engage in. That really is what, who we are. That's, uh, it makes me think of, um, well, who's the guy that does the pictures for Salt Lake, um, like the New York stuff? He's got the Facebook page. Faces of Salt Lake? Oh, yeah. Is that oh, it? humans. Oh, humans in Salt, Salt Lake. Like, that's, I mean, that was exactly kind of his, one of his driving motivations is the stories that you hear and the connections that you make with people, talking to people who, regardless of, of the situation that they're in, and he told us a couple of stories that, that I thought were really moving, that were, hey, I talked to this person that no one else would, that was just screaming and everyone was trying to run away from, basically. And, and he, like, completely changed her life. Yeah, changed and her life. And she came back and was like, thank you. Yeah. 
Yeah. So and it's yeah. So I, I, I that's 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 amazing to hear someone else say something similar. So I'm I'm curious then um, with your thought on 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 that and citizenship and being a good citizen, um, what you think about because um, th- this is something that has come up in Utah recently because of uh, the state uh, district attorney and some of the stuff that's going on there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, to put it to to put it briefly, um, what do you think about a, a position like the district attorney who um, I mean. Ultimately, at the end of the day, you're there to enforce laws that are made. Um, being an elected position versus an appointed position. Okay, that's a great question. You know, um, there's pros and cons, but uh, I believe in participatory democracy, and I believe in accountability, and uh, and I think that an elected position allows you to have a connection with your community in a granular way. There is a level of that personal accountability. I think the more we insulate power away from that checks and balances of our citizens' access, the that insularity creates the sense of distance and alienation, which I think right now is what we're undergoing and uh, suffering from. So I think that that's the question that uh, that that really uh, uh, comes to me. So I think whether it is city council, uh, you know, uh, whatever, uh, to district attorney to president, I think the more access that we give to our citizens to hold that accountability is important. You know, I, I'll tell you, for example, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, and we'll talk about whatever you want to talk about. Well, one of the, you know, there was a uh, incident that happened where I made a ruling on an officer involved shooting and the Black Lives Matter was outside protesting and Sim Gilmas resigned and the press called up and said, hey, do you have a comment? I go, absolutely, I do. I go, I go, good for them. That's fantastic because that's how participatory democracy is supposed to work and they should be questioning the authority, including every elected, including me. And that's the way it should be, right? Because, because it is a privilege, and I and I think we, we've lost something about elected office here. I think it is a privilege to be put in that position by an endorsement of your citizens, right? And then you're there to engage and be held accountable for. Now, that doesn't mean that it's merely consensus and you do whatever they say. There are sometimes responsibilities that come with those particular offices that, that we uh, have the privilege to be in at. But it is really that accountability that's really important. Uh, and so appointments are fine, but I think uh, the more that we can empower citizens to have a direct impact on those who are elected, that is the vibrancy of democracy. So do you not worry, because I, I think the, the big argument that, that you'll hear about you know, that position in particular, because of the way, at least in America, I agree in an, in an ideal world where, where all things are equal, that's the way to do it. But in, in the world we live in, Money rules politics, and in campaigns, sure. you're now asking a guy that has to prosecute violators of law yeah. to go out and raise money so that they can get in front of enough people for the people to sure. elect them. That's what we have seen with what's gone on with with Shirtliff and and, and that whole debacle. So, debacle, so, so, the, debacle so, so, one, so one way to do it is to take. So, for example, I've always been amazed why the district attorney or the attorney general or the sheriff or the assessor uh, or the you know, auditor, why are they partisan offices? Yeah. They, they should be nonpartisan yeah. offices, yeah, like right? A, like like uh, a school know? board. Right. So, you know, you, you know, um, a, 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 a criminal doesn't choose their victims by their party affiliation.
affiliation or their religion or whatever, right? It's so, so, so it's about service. There are certain institutions which are what I consider service institutions that really have nothing to do with party, right? And so as, you know, sometimes I explain it this way, you know, um, you know, if you're a homeowner and your house is on fire and in the middle of the night and the firefighters who show up to put out the fire, you don't run out in your pajamas saying, okay, okay, I know, I know the house is burning down, but uh, hold on. Could all the Democratic firefighters go to the, you know, to the left over here and all the Republican firefighters over here, you know, because I'm only going to let half of you put out the fire, right? So when we talk about certain aspects of the services that we're providing, they're so... Um, they're so intuitive to us in terms of our sense of safety, our sense of community, that they transcend party functions. And they're not really defined in party uh, terms. And uh, and these really are just good comments and policy issues. So I think, you know, the DA or the sheriff or anything, these are, you know, these are hang these are residues of party affiliations of which I think who's, which time has come that we need to really just kind of eliminate those. And so if you eliminate the party affiliation, but then allow for uh, voter participation, then you're there. Now, the other question that you raise or the point you make, I think is really relevant, which is the issue of money. And, uh, and, and, you know, and, you know, we can talk about Citizens United and how that's kind of perverted our uh, uh, participatory democracy. But the bottom line is, at this day and age, at this time, money is essential for you to be able to get your message out. Now, there is a lot of discussion about uh, publicly funded campaigns, and I think there's some value to that, uh, to where you limit the amount of money that comes in, and now you really have to rely on the communication and the message that you have to share with the people, and you really have to sell the message, not the image, right? And uh, so that is, a, I think, a very important uh, conversation for us to have if we continue to evolve the American experiment and what we call participatory democracy. And I think that's something really worthy of consideration. And, uh, and that's something we need to really look at. Anyone who listens to this show with regularity knows that that's actually the position that I take is I, I think that's what we should do for and not just in, in positions like yours, but I think across the board. That we, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago that yeah, there are some states that on your ballot, it's not there's no designation. It's the name. Yeah, yeah. And you need to do the research. And, and I think that makes a huge difference. Yeah, I hate huge. that our ballots say that you can just vote your party. Yeah. And you don't have to use your brain and think about who <laughs> who it is. Right. And, and it introduces this notion of, you know, we we're, most recently in our political dialogue, we've been talking about this sense of tribalism that's been going on out there. But if you think about it, a, a straight party voting is really a, a, a psychological thing of us versus them, right? Right? And and while that may be great for one side over another, but as part of the the notion of democracy itself, the notion of participatory democracy, that really is a very myopic way to address that issue. It really does reinforce this us against them kind of an issue and this idea of us coming together as a shared community to solve challenges that confront us, right? And look, I've said this before this way. Nobody has a monopoly either on brilliance nor stupidity, right? <laughs> and, and, you know, and, you know, this I don't is, know. I've met some people on that second one. <laughs> And since since nobody does, you know, uh, you know, I make mistakes and uh, I don't have great ideas. And but one of the things that I've done, at least uh, I've been very lucky to do is to create a circle of uh, colleagues whose job is 
And the way when I originally put them together, they're all independent. They're all, uh, uh, you know, very successful in their uh, professional uh, professionalism, but they're also very, very v uh, fiercely independent. And the idea of having a conversation with five or six uh, co-equal people who are putting in their ideas and we're mashing it together, that has really helped us come up with the best solution, not the perfect solution, but the one that is really kind of granularly uh, sort of organically grows up out of that sort of conflict and resolution, if you will. And I think really those are the best ways to kind of approach these kind of challenges. So I, I want to talk about, because you brought it up and I actually put it on our notes as something yeah. to talk about. It's something that has has really been eating at me the last few days. So over the last two weeks, um, we've had across the Wasatch Front I think six officer-involved shootings now in the state of Utah, yeah, and and then uh, in the state of Utah, uh, I think there's been like five in the last three days or six days yeah. or whatever it was, and even on our just general numbers uh, this year, I think uh, with the last shooting that I think happened yesterday, I think we are at uh, 17 shootings in Salt Lake County alone, which is a uh, alarmingly huge. different number than last year. I think we had six or seven last year for the whole year. For the whole year. So it is a very different number. And, uh, and I, if, if my memory serves me, I think last year was seven, the year before that was seven, then we had four prior to that. Uh, and we keep going back to when I first came on. So this is a very different um, uh, year for it's us. It's clearly a big and, deal if you can remember the numbers three years back, because you have to deal with them. I do. And, uh, you know, I, and over the last eight years, I've uh, dealt with over 60 officer-involved shootings. And, uh, and, uh, and, and, you know, and so it's a very interesting sort of space that I occupy here because uh, because I have and let me be clear, there are many men and women in law enforcement who do their job honorably, professionally, with great risk to themselves and and they serve in, a, in that capacity. So we're all safe. Right. And so I do not want to take anything away from them uh, because it's a dangerous job. But in the United States of America, there's three ways you can uh, kill somebody. One is through an act of Congress uh, in the declaration of war. And the second is with maybe 30 to 40 years of appeals when we uh, sentence somebody to, de uh, to death. Or third, in a police and citizen encounter where a, a citizen is shot. And I think that it does not take anything away from the professionalism and the responsibility of our law enforcement that we are concerned as a community when citizens of our community are shot for whatever reason. And to be able to look at that and to examine that is, uh, I think, the hallmark of a conscious and a concerned community. That's what we do for each other. Now, by the same token, uh, that uh, the, that conduct functions within the parameters and uh, within uh, within the uh, within the construct of a legal uh, uh, use of force. So there is a statute that allows uh, when that force can occur, and that's something that is the byproduct of a statutory construction through the uh, end result of a participatory democracy. And at the same time, it is, would be foolish for us to not acknowledge that we have in this country a sense of distance 
distance and alienation from our citizens who feel disconnected from the institution of power and they feel disconnected from that use of force because there is no transparency or accountability or in a sharing of that information. And again, uh, I don't mean to be reductionist here, but at the same time, we, we would also be foolish to not acknowledge that within our criminal justice system, that communities of color and communities of poverty are disproportionately impacted. And when we think of the nation as a whole, that we do have a race issue within our country and we have this issue and there are uh, communities of color that are being impacted in some of these shootings in a way and there's a genuine concern there. So, so my role as an elected is to occupy that really interesting space where between law enforcement and my community. And, and the way I approach this is that my responsibility, the privilege of my power and my privilege of my institution is to bring the unvarnished truth to my community, not the perfect truth, but the unvarnished truth from which from which there is conflict, from which we have to engage in the organic questioning and answering, from which we can then create a better community. So when I make a ruling, I follow the law. I, it's not about because one week I'm brilliant to half of the population and I'm an <laughs> ass to the other. And next week I'm brilliant to the other half and I'm an ass to the other. And, uh, uh, you know, and, and I assume this is a podcast, so I'm going to apologize. <laughs> but, you know, and, and so it's not about pleasing one side or another. It is about committing yourself to a process. And through that process, let the truth come out, what is working come out, and what is not working come out, right? Uh, I've sat down with parents whose children have been shot and killed and, and sat down and talked to them about the loss of that life. And, and as the representative of the district attorney's office, try to give them that imperfect truth of what happened. And sometimes I have all the information, sometimes I don't. But it is about, about embracing that responsibility in a way without any personal animosity to either side, right? It is, look, if my law enforcement folks do what they're supposed to be doing and they do, I defend them. And, uh, and when they do something wrong, it is my responsibility as an independent elected to hold them accountable. That does not mean that I disrespect them. It is that I take my responsibility with the same seriousness that I afford to them to take their responsibility. And by the same token, when my community says that your answer, Sim, is not perfect, it is not, it's not satisfying enough for us, and that we, we don't feel that this is complete, then, then we need to think about why that is not complete. And what is that, what is that vacuum that's created? Because it is through that interaction that we will become engaged in the political process to author the change that we want to do. So, for example, when I became DA, one of my uh, transparency and accountability is a big issue for me. Before, the district attorneys used to just give like a one-sentence statement, and they would say, justified or not justified. We became the first administration where we actually publish all our reports. They're on my website. Uh, uh, what happened? What was the evidence? Who gave me testimony? What was the, what is the state of 
the law? How do we apply the information that we had? What was our analysis and how we reached a conclusion? And I published that because I think our community should have access to that information. We were also the first one which actually said, look, if you're engaged in this use of force, you shouldn't self-investigate, right? Because if, you, if you're a police agency and your police officer on patrol hits another citizen's car, they call an outside agency because there's a conflict of interest. If you get a call for a domestic violence and you and you're the responding law enforcement agency and it happens to be a detective from the same force, you don't self-investigate because it's a conflict of interest. And I found it ironic, but when we shoot somebody, we want to self-investigate, right? <laughs> there was this contradiction. Clearly, it, people it, don't watch Law and Order. <laughs> <laughs> and and so, so the thing was, it, and so that perpetuates a distrust. So the idea is to take the distrust away so we can have an objective process. So we were the, we agitated to change the law so we can have an a independent task force do that investigation. And then, of course, uh, whether it's perfect or not, I make myself available, whether it's Black Lives Matter or Utahns Against Police Brutality or any citizen who wants. For 18 years, every Friday, I have what are called citizens meeting, and they can come down and ask me any questions they want, and I give them access because the institution belongs to them. It doesn't belong to me. I'm a temporary caretaker. Now, access doesn't mean agreement because I do also have responsibilities under the law, but access means that you get to ask the questions and we get to have this conversation, right? So it is that really weird space that, like I said, I occupy, but it is a where others people may want to run away from it. I accept it because it is the privilege of leadership to own that space and to navigate between these competing interests in a very truthful way that we can. Do you have something, Jess? Yeah, he, he actually brought it up on his own, the polarization of somebody hating him one day and somebody loving him the next, how with, it is a, a polarizing being the DA, how do you keep that outside noise out of, of the, cause there is a lot of negativity involved in that. I think that, uh, if you, uh, I sometimes have said it this way, uh, Many people are enamored with the idea of being a district attorney, but nobody really wants to do the job okay? <laughs> uh, because uh, because at the end of the day, it is uh, it is not always sexy. It is not uh, always easy. It is not always pleasant, but it is a privilege. And I think if you approach it with the right mindset uh, to recognize what a privilege it is to be there and why you're there, you're there to really have a bigger, broader conversation. Um, you know, look, I used to be a line prosecutor. I've been a public prosecutor for 23 years. I prosecuted for Layton City, for Salt Lake City. I was a line prosecutor with the arson fraud unit, uh, with the district attorney's office. Then I went from the criminal side to the civil side. My background's in environmental and natural resources law. We helped start the first environmental task force. I did environmental crimes prosecutions. I did a lot of sexual exploitation for profit cases, which were now are called human trafficking cases. Then I was appointed as the chief city prosecutor for Salt Lake City, which I the role I was in for 10 years. So, but I made a conscious decision at one point to leave the the granularity of being in the courtroom to actually be the district attorney. And the reason I became district attorney because I wanted to have a broader conversation about what this office represented and and uh, and and to and to make the kind of systemic changes to our criminal justice issues that I think have been long overdue. So I in a way I guess what I'm answering your question is to say that I kind of went there with my eyes open with a very different expectation and a demand of myself of 
what it means to be have the privilege of elected office. It really was to try to, you know, we talk about it. It's kind of fascinating to me. We can sit around, we can talk about it in an academic way. You know, wouldn't it be great if we kind of did it this way or that way? And somehow that's that ideal. I remember after we won our first uh, uh, election, I brought my key uh, team together and they're all brilliant people. Uh, and, uh, and I said, listen, each one of you at some time or another have been watching this TV and watching some uh, policymaker or politician there and wanting to throw your shoe or something at the TV <laughs> and saying, my gosh, they just need to you know, pull their head out and do something right. I go, you know, and what a dumbass they are. And you're making that comment. I go, congratulations. We are the dumbasses. On <laughs> okay. And so my challenge to all of us, my challenge to all of us was that I, that is no longer just a theoretical exercise. I really wanted to experience what would it be like if we actually created an administration that was committed to serving our community. Now, you know, there's a lot of people who will say, no, no, you got it wrong. You didn't come. And I accept that. But I can tell you what our motivation was, that we wanted to really actualize that. And we all embraced knowing that it was going to be difficult and it was going to be sometimes thankless, but it was also going to provide us with opportunities to be able to make a difference in people's lives and change the conversation for our community in a way that was different from what the historical experience with a public institution had been. And that really has been our motivation. So how how closely do you work with other DAs around the state? Well, you know, we have, we have we talk to each other and but uh, but Salt Lake County is unique. We are the largest county. We're the largest urbanized county because we're wall to wall cities. Uh, and, and, and so there is some similarities along the Wasatch front with the uh, different uh, county attorney's offices. And, but as you move away from the Wasatch front, we are connected in sort of function and name, but our sort of real, um, experience is very different. So for example, you know, my office uh, this year will probably screen some 19 and a half thousand cases. Okay. Uh, and, uh, and uh, through an interlocal agreement, I also brought the Salt Lake City Prosecutor's Office under our management uh, in the district attorney's office uh, for fiscal reasons and uh, also for other reasons. And when you combine the two offices together, the largest municipal prosecutor's office. So my title is I'm, the, I'm also the Salt Lake City Prosecutor through this management agreement. And I'm also the Salt Lake County District Attorney. And, uh, and when we bring these two offices together with the largest DA, office, our footprint probably is somewhere conservatively between 35 to 40 percent of all crime in the state of Utah is prosecuted by this, these two combined offices. So there's another 40 percent up in Ogden. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so our experience is very different, yeah. right? But our challenges, our opportunities are also very different, right? So for example, if we really want to lead out on a conversation about criminal justice reform, and I remember talking when we, before we did Operation Rio Grande, we did Operation Diversion as a sort of a pilot one day uh, thing and uh, to gather research and data from that. I remember Greg Hughes was there, Speaker Hughes was there, and I told him, I go, listen, we're talking about criminal justice reform. We're talking about these sort of macro systems issues. I go, if 
if if if the if Salt Lake County does not succeed in criminal justice reform, then the state of Utah doesn't succeed in the criminal justice yeah. reform. And but if we succeed in Salt Lake County, we can succeed as a state, right? Wouldn't you, as an investor, wouldn't you want to talk to somebody who controls forty percent of market share, right? Of course you would. So so my point simply is that our size also gives us an opportunity to then have these broader conversations about criminal justice reform in a way that if we were smaller, we couldn't. The other thing I just want to point out is that people often think of the Salt Lake County District Attorney's Office in the context of criminal prosecution. Mm -hmm. Here's the part that they don't understand also sometimes, is that Salt Lake, I'm also the civil counsel to a $1.3 billion corporation called Salt Lake County Government. So, so my client is the mayor. My client is all, uh, all the other independent electeds. My client is also the Salt Lake County uh, Council. My, uh, so the civil component of it, from contracts and procurement to tax issues, land use, to good public policy and different kinds of things that we're doing, uh, that is also part of my responsibility. We also uh, defend the county from civil litigation as well as sue and be half of the county. So for example, we sued Big Pharma on the opioid issues. We filed litigation uh, against the state of Utah for unfair taxation and tax policy, which are civil uh, components as well. So when you combine that portfolio together, the Salt Lake County District Attorney's Office scope is huge. is huge. Your mind must always I'm, be going. <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up because that was going to be one of my questions is what, what was some of the other stuff that you do because it's not just criminal cases that you guys do with i i you don't have to answer this question but i i'm I'm actually really curious about it because you mentioned it and i wasn't even thinking about it but the death penalty at a at a personal level what is your thought on the death penalty and you don't have to answer it because not everyone likes to answer that question but I'm, i'm just curious no look we're having a conversation so i think anything that you ask is on the table so when I was running first, uh, uh, running for uh, for DA's office, somebody asked me the same question. Uh, you know, uh, do you support the death penalty? And I go, well, I can give you one of two answers. I can give you a political answer or I can give you an honest answer. Which one would you like? Right. And they go, well, you know, we want the honest answer. I go, well, okay. The honest answer is I struggle with the death penalty. And you want a district attorney who is not cavalier and haphazard about it. And, and it is a tool that through our participatory democracy that they put it there. It's a tool that you go to under the most rarest of circumstances. And you want a district attorney who struggles through it. And uh, and when it comes to making a decision about the death penalty, uh, although I have a colleagues, a circle of colleagues, and I've got a homicide team, at the end of the day, that is my decision and my decision alone. And I will not let anybody else make that decision. And I own that decision. And, uh, and, and, I, and then I sort of have this weird ritual where I actually will take like a day aside where I will actually go to my office on a weekend or something and then I'll pull the file and I think about the decision that I'm making and it's usually a this is I know it's going to sound weird but it's kind of this ritual that I kind of go through and 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 because I want to kind of existentially feel it and own that part of that decision that I make and and that is how what my struggle is with it and now having said that I think that we need to start thinking about why we have the death penalty 
because if you think about it historically, both in the context of our Judeo-Christian tradition, which we've inherited, which talks about how we punish this kind of transgression as a part of our sort of uh, social-cultural uh, history that we have. Uh, there's one part of that. The other part is that, remember, we used to live in these small hamlets and towns, and there was this idea that if somebody really committed this really heinous crime, if you didn't hold them accountable, they could run off and hide into anonymity of the world, and they would continue to do this, right? So there was this idea of our Judeo-Christian tradition and this sense of safety that we had, and the death penalty sort of served that uh, uh, ultimate transgression. Now, fast forward to the 21st century, and what we have here is certainly life without the possibility of parole can certainly assure us that this person will not go out and do anything out there. So I think this conversation is there. Now, the other part is that within the context of actually applying the death penalty, remember, there is also a victim side of the family, which has to also endure the next 25 or 30 years of appeals. And you're asking that victim's family to not be able to have the kind of finality of closure, because that's a fresh wound that will be opened up with every new appeal that you go through. So you have to think about that part, because you're also taking them along for this ride uh, as well. And then the other thing that we need to think about is the cost that's attendant with that as well. Now, I put these things out because I think this is something we should think about. So one way to, that I think about it is that either we need to get rid of it and we need to make that decision through our participatory democracy. The other thing is that we need to maybe think about that we have somewhere, depending on who you talk to, between 66 to 70 plus aggravators, which you can say will qualify you for the death penalty. And maybe we need to not have so many aggravators and reduce them down to, if we're going to just step back from the cliff, maybe to these four intuitive ones ones. So I think maybe as a part of policy discussion, maybe the death penalty is appropriate if you engage in mass killings. Maybe the death penalty is appropriate if you're already serving a sentence of life without the possibility of parole and you kill other prisoners. Maybe death penalty is something to consider if you actually abduct and kidnap children and sexually assault them and murder them uh, and, uh, you know, and you're engaged in mass killings. And finally, the death penalty is uh, maybe appropriate in the context of your killing and targeting police officers in the line of duty. Now, I, I, I put that out there again as a opportunity to think about and saying, okay, if we want to do that, you know, do we want it for 60 or 70 aggravators or do we want to actually look at those limited ones that we have? So I think that this conversation is going to be something that's going to be coming up on the legislature and we need to, um, there's a certain urgency with which we need to re-examine that. But, uh, but I struggle with the death penalty as you as every district attorney should. So what do you, what do you say to people who, who, when looking at the death penalty and, and they hear what you say about you reopening that wound and, and it takes a lot of money to do all those appeals. What do you, what do you say to people who say, well, just get rid of all those appeals? Well, again, uh, you know, look, if we're going to make a decision to put somebody to death, then we need to also then step back and say, okay, uh, uh, what are the safeguards do we have in place that we want to make sure that we don't have somebody who's wrongfully convicted? The other thing we want to make sure is that we want to, then maybe we need to think about a an appellate team that is funded by the taxpayers who's 
job is within the next five to ten years or five to seven years who have all the resources so they can make the kind of appeals that are necessary right and so so you know because the argument is that there's a deterrent well it's not a deterrent okay so so i think we need to sort of own the responsibility that goes with by putting somebody to death and what the true cost of that is and what would that uh, process look like where we can safeguard uh, those errors systemic errors that uh, that sometimes find themselves there because that is also our responsibility because if you're going to put somebody to death then we need to own that responsibility in its fullest uh, responsible sense that it is and the gravity and the weight of what that means for us to do that and then we need to fund it uh, appropriately uh, as well uh, you know when we look at at the across the country we need to recognize that there have been some institutional failures, right? You know, there's a series of cases from Georgia and Texas where you had very incompetent people who were assigned to de defend some people. And so we need to recognize that if there is a death penalty case, and we try to address that, but we need to make sure that there's a robust defense. And all those elements are there. We have to own all of that responsibility. Um, and look, uh, you know, uh, when, when you sit down and have an honest conversation, and I have, I've talked to victims uh, and talk to, and I tell them, your input is important. I want to hear from you, but the decision is going to be mine. And, and I want to make sure that we have that conversation. We talk about what they want. We want to see what they want. And I'll also tell you in some of these, what I would consider death penalty cases, um, some of the incredible compassion from other human beings that come from victims uh, who you would think would not want to forgive, who would not want to say a short, I want to, I want to put this person to death. Uh, a, a level of humanity and compassion that I've seen from some of those victims has been deeply profound as well. I, I appreciate the, the open honesty when it comes to that. It's always something that I I feel like a lot of people just won't, you know, especially people in, in some sort of public position won't give an honest answer about, uh, and it's a, I think you're right. It's a conversation that, that needs to be had. Yeah. It, it needs to be had frequently. Absolutely. It can't be something that we have it. We decide look, it's, and it, 20 years later, it's, we a, it's a tool that is available. It's up in the cupboard and you reach to it for very rare circumstances. And you need to just be very conscious about the, the act of it. It cannot be this political act. It cannot be to please somebody act. You have to really existentially own that decision. Right. And, uh, you know, uh, again, you know, my backgrounds in history and philosophy, uh, you know, I uh, and I don't mean to sound morbid here, but, but you know, this is I, I'm really enjoying this conversation. So, you know, I sometimes think that if there is a God there and and let's say it's a transgression to and, and if God comes up to me and says, hey, uh, you were in that position as a D.A. and you killed one of my uh, uh, creatures that I created. Uh, would I be able to own that decision in front of God? And that's the question that I ask myself when I go through this process. That's, that's, that's good to hear. Okay, so I'm going to ask you, we can't let you go without asking you about uh, Prop 2. Okay. Um, <laughs> well, you, you haven't touched upon all the things I want to talk about. Well, so, that means you're going to have to come uh, back. back. Okay. <laughs> after, so, after you're reelected, you can come back. Well, you're very kind. Uh, so two things. First of all, um, I am the, I think I'm the only district attorney who's publicly come out and said uh, I support Proposition 2. Okay. And so let me tell you how I achieved that, uh, reached that conclusion. First of all. Is it because you want to smoke pot? Well, you know, uh, <laughs> let me give that, let me give that answer. Uh, so, so first 
first of all, this is not about recreational uh, uh, marijuana. This is about medical cannabis, right? So the first thing is this is not rec. Uh, okay, the second thing is this is not something I arrived at just yesterday. Uh, about three and a half, four years ago, I had the privilege of uh, going up on the hill and I actually met people like Desiree and her son Hestavon. And I met uh, Doug and his daughter Ashley. And these were, these were citizens just like you and me. These were parents. These were family members who were concerned about because they had no other options that were available. So let me share a story, for example, about Doug and Ashley, right? Doug, Doug's a, a, a paramedic. He's somebody and, and he has a daughter who has uh, these uh, seizures. And, uh, and, uh, and uh, every time you ha- she, Ashley has a seizure, uh, that could be her last breath. And, and she has 20, 25 seizures a day. Okay. And, uh, and then, uh, so when there was some CBD oil, uh, that CBD oil can reduce her seizures from about 20, 25 down to five or six, but she still has those five or six. And for whatever reason, half a gummy bear with THC, active THC reduces those five or six down to zero. Wow. Okay. Now for that family, for that father who cares about her, his daughter, the last person he should be worried about in that conversation between a a parent and a physician is a prosecutor. And the last person who should be there trying to tell that parent, by the way, I'm going to prosecute you if you do this. And that is a choice that no parent should have to go through, right? So when I met these individuals almost three and a half, four years ago, I saw them as the people and the daily pragmatic challenges that they were going through. And I can tell you, I've been a prosecutor for 23 years. They were not the criminals that I want to go out and prosecute (laughs) as a prosecutor. And so then they approached our legislature and they approached our legislature with pleas and through the participatory democracy, that process that was available. And our legislature turned a, a deaf ear to them, right? And, and, and the result of which came out was just most recently in terms of active THC possibilities was that they came up with a law that says, uh, you know, uh, we're going to let you try if you promise to really die, Bill, yeah. right? And then that the last six months you have to be in this catastrophic uh, death, you know, and, and you have to really promise to die. And, um, and we'll you let you try. Be, we'll you let you be, try. You have to be at the point that you're actually hot hospitalized and they're injecting you actively with more morphine every day you know and so 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 they did that so so they turned to t- d- d- deaf ear so then the only avenue that was available to these citizens was the ballot initiative right so the ballot initiative what is a ballot initiative a ballot indi- initiative for me is an indictment of the failure of the legislature to respond to its citizens in their when there it was their responsibility to act in their best interest right and it was that deaf year that they turned. So then getting on the ballot initiative is not easy in the state of Utah. So they went out with the only option that was available and they went out and worked their tails off and they got this on the ballot initiative. Now, as soon as they get that on the ballot initiative and they tried to suppress that, now, all of a sudden, there's a light bulb that goes on and we're going to have this grand compromise and there's all this other stuff. 
And the only reason we have this grant compromise or this offer is because the powers that be see the people getting the power and it's an existential threat to them checking their power. So my position is this is if we want to vote it down, we vote it down. If they vote it up, this is the will of the people. Let the people vote in a participatory democracy. And I have no doubt in my mind that we will either go into a special session or we will have a legislative session and we will be able to balance patients' needs and access to medical cannabis with any public safety concerns that we have. But we should not suppress the vote. Let the people vote. That's why I support Prop 2. <laughs> well, and, and, I, and I will say this. So the, the, the governor has come out and said with a bunch of people standing around him, hey, we got a plan. You know what I haven't heard from them? What that plan is. I haven't seen legislation so, drawn up. So, so That's because you weren't behind the closed doors. So, so, so there well, is, I don't have so, a card. So there is, there is this discussion that's going on. And look, this is not a perfect ballot initiative. No, but it was, but, but, yeah. but it's okay because it's the people. And here's the irony. I've kind of looked at what the compromise proposal is. And we were asked, and my office just sent a, a three-page letter indicating how we can improve even this compromise because it has flaws. Uh, surprise, surprise. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, and so, but here's the thing. A promise to do something in the future is not a guarantee that it will be done. They've the tried. only insurance policy that the citizens have is to go out and exercise their franchise and vote this up because at that moment you will have the certainty of the power of the law to have our legislature pay attention now what they should have been doing three years ago. Yeah, exactly. And we, we've been saying this. If you yeah. vote yes, it's not perfect, but if you vote yes, it's it start. forces start. the legislature to either one... Just enact the imperfect law because that's the way our constitution yeah. works in this state. Or two, like you said, go into a special session and fix the problem. And, and let's be very clear what this is. This is not a left or right issue. This is not a Democrat or Republican issue. And this is not a Mormon, non-Mormon issue. I am very grateful that people are talking about this, right? What this is, is a human issue. This is about the dignity of people who have no other options that are available to them. This is not some voodoo science. If you go down and look at Israel, which is, since this is a Schedule One drug, we can't do the research in this country. Israel, Dr. Meshmalom, I believe, is, is a person who's done research for 50 years in medical cannabis. Just three or four years ago, they did a clinical study of almost 20,000 patients with medical cannabis. So the research is out there. We need to take this off schedule one so we can start doing the research because this is not a, ma a magic elixir for everyone. But the paucity of research that we've done here is, is is shameful because there are other countries that are demonstrating that this is a good option for people to have. But the only guarantee is to exercise your vote and go out. And if this matters to you, vote it up. And, and if it's voted down, because I'll tell you one thing, they keep saying that they're going to do this. They're going to do this regardless of what happens. I can promise you right now, there are legislators who, if this gets voted down, to say, hey, the will of the people is they didn't want yep. this and they're not, not going to be doing it. Okay. You're 100% right with that. And, and it will be the majority of legislatures how, yeah legislators how do you <laughs> how do you feel about these these ads and and i guess there's loopholes that allow them to do this that are saying 
you know, this medical marijuana bill, it, it enables street corner sales and it should be done in pharmacies. Well, it can't be done in pharmacies, pharmacies. because pharmacies are regulated by the federal government. And the federal government still says it's illegal. I mean, it's it's lies. It's 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 out and out false information. But they've gone through these loopholes and people who aren't doing their research or have a tendency to lean toward. I don't really want this to be in my community because I think it's a gateway drug or whatever reason. You know, I think that it's just horrible and nobody should be on that drug. I mean, when you see those when I see those ads, I, I I'm physically angry because it's so bad. It's not just he said, she said in the campaign, you know, the campaigns where they're saying me love did this yeah, and yeah. Adams. It's actual lies. Well, you know, that is the wonderful thing about freedom of speech, right? <laughs> uh, you know, uh, you know, you know, uh, you know, uh, that's the kind of mishmash of our political process. And, uh, and so people get out and we have a, we live in a universe where alternative facts seems to be a parallel universe <laughs> of conversation. But look, here's my, all kidding aside, look, here's the deal. Uh, the thing is, first of all, let's be very clear what it is not. This is not recreational marijuana. This is medical cannabis. Right. And let's also be very realistic and say that on the borders of the state of Utah, there's not this magical force field that if you're coming in, <laughs> all of a sudden, if you happen to have weed in your pocket, like it repels it out of your pocket and it ends up on the Colorado side and you only get to enter in a pristine uh, state when you enter the borders of Utah. You and I can go down right now on any, uh, you know, unfortunately any uh, high school and whatever, and you'll find weed there, right? Mm -hmm. It's there. Just like there is abuse of alcohol, which is a legal substance that we get to use in this country and this state. And, you know, there's always going to be abuse. This is about medical cannabis. And it is about giving that option to people and so they can have this option which to alleviate the suffering of people. So that let's be clear what this is. The second part of it is that whatever we want to do to balance access to medical cannabis and enforcement, for example, you don't get to sell it on the street because that's still going to be illegal. And if you use it, and guess what? The, you know, people talk about, you know, there's be more impaired driving and drunk driving, uh, you know, on pot. Well, you're right. I prosecute people who have legal substances, but they're impaired. So if you're impaired on booze, if you're impaired on the prescription medication and you're a risk to driving, and if you're impaired uh, smoking pot, we're going to prosecute you, right? And uh, and if you are dealing it without a license, you're going to be, uh, you know, held accountable. So we can come up with a balance between public safety. We will never be able to get rid of the abuse that occurs, just like we can't get rid of the abuse of alcohol that occurs, well, you know? And the one thing that a lot of people fail to, to, to think about when they're talking about medical cannabis is something that you, as, as a district attorney of Salt Lake, have, have actually gone out and prosecuted or, or filed yeah. suit against Big Pharma for opioid problems. That's right. Because that's a legal drug. That's perfectly legal to be prescribed. And a lot more people have been killed and harmed and collateral consequences has been there. How many people and, have uh, overdosed on marijuana? Well, you know, people will say zero. Uh, you know, that because that's what uh, you know, you don't overdose on, on smoking pot. You get goofy and laugh yeah. and eat a, a bag of Doritos and, uh, you know, <laughs> spill food all over that's yourself. That's but, you know, 
But I, I bring that up because we have other substances that are perfectly legal that we say this helps with this condition. You can get a pill so you can have an erection. You can get a pill to deal with your migraine. You can get a pill to deal with your back pain, but that pill is addictive. It's a strong narcotic and you can die from taking two of them. Right. And, and you know, and look, I think part of this is to have a, a have a fair conversation, which is which is I absolutely understand uh, people who will be genuinely concerned about this issue and the abuse. I think that's legitimate. Uh, you don't want children to have access to it, just like you don't want alcohol to be there. And 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 just because you don't give access to patient doesn't mean that marijuana is going to go away tomorrow, right? It's already here. And so I think we need to just come up with smart policies, and we need to recognize those who are going to abuse are going to abuse it. And uh, can we put the safeguards that are there that are consistent with our values as Utahns and also give access to patients, I absolutely believe that we can do that and we shouldn't be afraid of it. And to answer your last question, Bree, is that, uh, you know, what we need to do, we need to recognize fear for fear, misinformation for misinformation. And, uh, and, and the beautiful thing about being a citizen in this country is you get to educate yourself and you get to exercise your vote. And, uh, but the worst thing you can do is to complain about it and not exercise your right to vote. Uh, if you want to vote against it, vote against it. If you want to vote for it, educate yourself and vote for it. So I, I'm going to ask you, because we're, we're coming up on time here with you, but I, I want to ask you first, you know, what's something else that you want to talk about? Yeah. You're, you're so, 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 you know, look, um, I became a public prosecutor because it was something very near and dear to me. I became a public prosecutor because I wanted to address broader, and, and I ran for office because I wanted to address broader issues. So here's what I'm going to share with you. Over the 23 years, here's my hypothesis. And my hypothesis is as follows. When public policymakers fail to address the issues of social justice, economic justice, political justice, public health, housing, education, and employment, these public policy failures or deficits manifest themselves as crises in our community. And historically, we have relied on law enforcement to be our crisis managers. And in application of that crisis management, it has disproportionately impacted communities of color and communities of poverty. And as a result of that, we jail more human beings in the United States of America than any other country in the world. We're number one. China's number two. Russia's, uh, uh, Russia's number three. Cuba used to be number four, and Brazil is now bypassing that. We went from spending about six or seven billion dollars a year uh, as a country in the, I think, mid-1980s to over 70, over 80 billion dollars a year now to prop up our incarceration state. We are jailing people at a rate which which is far in net body count than China, which has like five or six times our population. Now, you may say, well, Sam, if people are out there committing crimes, then maybe that's what we should do. And the return on investment for all this money that we're spending is that two-thirds of the people who are released from prison will be behind bars within 36 months of their release. So we're not even getting a return on our investment. So now that forces us to ask, are we jailing the right people? We should be jailing people that are a risk to our community. That 
we were afraid of rather than those people that we dislike. And one perfect example of this, for example, is the mentally ill who are cycling through our criminal justice system. 18 years ago, I helped start the very first mental health court in the state of Utah. And we said, hey, instead of jailing people, uh, using jail as a punishment model, what we used it as an opportunity to get access to medication. The number one mental health facility in the United States of, of America is the, uh, is the LA County Jail. The number two is Rikers Island. Number three is Cook County. And depending on which study you look at, we have to go 14 or 15 before we get to a publicly accessible, publicly funded uh, mental health facility. Wow. So as a public prosecutor, my whole thing is I'm a huge advocate of therapeutic justice. I'm a huge advocate of making sure that we take nonviolent offenders and we take them out and give them opportunity of treatment to transition them out of the criminal justice system so we can free up the jail beds for those who are a genuine risk to our community. And this requires a systems approach to criminal justice. And these are the big ideas that matter to me, right? As a public prosecutor, you wouldn't think that one of the things that I'm worried about is transitional housing, right? I'm in talking... Uh, I've been in conversation with Habitat for Humanity and private uh, uh, developers to figure out how do I continue the trajectory of success those people who are going to transition out of our criminal justice system. We need to recognize that the day of uh, cash bail for nonviolent offenders is, has come to an end. It does not give us uh, security that we hope, but it disproportionately impacts and alters the structure of existence for people who are poor, right? These are the kind of systemic challenges we need to think about in a more broader way. And we need to create uh, coalitions and policies and partnerships with policymakers and other third parties and community partners so we can start to push back against sort of a failed criminal justice system. And maybe I should rephrase that. Unfortunately, our criminal justice system is doing exactly what it was designed to do, which is disproportionately impacting a, a, as a systemic response communities of color and communities of poverty without giving us the outcomes that we want. So the reason I, uh, I I ran for district attorney, and the reason I continue to be here is because this is my this is the opportunity that I get to do to have the broader conversations about how do we turn this tide back, what are the best methodologies that we have to get the better outcomes that we want, and are we living up to the ideals of justice, fairness, equality, proportionality in punishment to deliver on the ideals that every citizen should have an expectation of. And I am not suggesting by any means that the answers that I have are perfect. But what I am suggesting is that it is my privilege to be in this position to push forward for these conversations which are long overdue. And if we're going to make the kind of change that we want in our society, then it is about time that we start having these kind of conversations because it is through these conversations we will create the critical mass to change the society consistent with the ideals that we want. So that's why I'm running for this and why I continue to want to be uh, have the privilege to be a part of this. That is out of the mouth of the sexiest DA in Utah. <laughs> <laughs> I second that. <laughs> I'm still thinking about I when think you said. sexual harassment. Well, I'm just thinking back to when he said, being a DA, DA isn't always sexy. And I'm like, I don't think of the DA as ever being sexy. <laughs> so he is definitely the sexiest DA I know. Um, okay, last question. Sure. Uh, we this is the most important this. question. It really is. It really is. So uh, you, you live in the state of Utah. You, yeah. you clearly are not from Utah. You yes. Were, you were born in, in India. Yes. Um, what's one thing you would tell someone visiting the state that they had to do before they left? You know, what I would tell them is that uh, we are really lucky here in the Wasatch Front that you have access 
to some of the most beautiful mountains, some of the best trails that you can actually in 10, 15 minutes lose yourself in nature in a way that there are a lot of people around the world still cannot do that. And I think that uh, there is such a abundance of natural beauty here that we're really lucky. You know, I'm reminded of my my brother uh, uh, who was uh, he's a he's a successful head and neck surgeon. He was he went on a summer thing to Harvard uh, on this medical program, and he met. Uh, this uh, young man who was coming from the Bronx, uh, from the inner city, and then he invited him out here, and he took him up into the mountains, and they wrote, they they took this hike up to I think uh, Mount Olympus, and and he sat there, and this uh, young man just literally had tears in his eyes because he just said it's not fair. It's not fair <laughs> that you have access to this, and I've never had access to this, right? Uh, he, he grew up on the inner city uh, in poverty, and it was really amazing. So I think we, we are really lucky. Now, having said that, the one thing I wouldn't want people to experience is the absolute horrendous uh, climate that we have in the winter and when, <laughs> when our air quality is worse than Shanghai, right? Yeah, and bad. so, but look, man, you know, you know, 30 minutes you're up in the mountains, 30 minutes you're out in the desert, 30 minutes you're on a lake, uh, you know, 30 minutes you're, you're at the, you know, Great Salt Lake. I think that is such an incredible thing that we have. And then if you spend a couple hours driving down south, some of the canyons that we have down there, some of the natural ones, I mean, it is incredible. You go out on a, on, a, on a hike for five or six hours, man, you're just communing with nature. I think that is something beautiful that we have. You know, and I would want people to experience that. Well, thanks for bringing sexy to the district's attorneys. <laughs> <laughs> well, you guys, you guys are very, very kind to me, and uh, and hopefully we can uh, have a more uh, specific conversation about some of our criminal justice reform oh, issues because I think that's a conversation we really should be having as well. But thank you for the privilege. Well, that's going to do it for tonight. Thanks again to the sexiest DA in the state of Utah. Um, we should make him a pin that says that. Do you think that's harassment if we did that? Yes. Oh, no. I think he'd probably wear it. If we could actually get a real lapel pin. <laughs> Not just like our buttons, but a, like a metal metal one. Maybe he would wear like it. a tie tack. It would be awesome if he. <laughs> I'm gonna I don't Google think that. he would. I don't think he would. But he would probably he would. appreciate. He would probably appreciate a button. Um, but anyway, thanks. Thanks. We to need Sam. to order more, by and, the way. And thanks to to Derek from Lizzie's Kitchen. I really need to go buy more of their hummus. Um, and uh, I really hope he. We're talking about him being elected here in a couple of weeks. Um, so I, anyway, the the. Man, those conversations. I don't. I don't know what else to say um, other than we need to have uh, probably both of them back at some point. Um, well, we'll have to have Derek back because it'll be his first term as a senator, and we'll want to hear how it's going. And then we just need to have some Gil back because he's just awesome. Probably love to hear either during during the session or just after the session to see how it went. I'd be curious as, like a, as a first term and a young guy doing it. Um, That'd be awesome when he and Alex get voted in. Yeah, that would be cool. It'd be good. So, um, yeah, if you want to follow us on Twitter at TNU Podcast, uh, that's really probably the best way to get a hold of us. Uh, and if you have an event, um, let us know and we'll retweet your stuff usually, unless you're you know, a racist and don't even bother. <laughs> no Nazi events. Um, yeah, I don't do racism. Uh, Jason Chaffetz, piece of shit. Um but uh, and by the way, Irish high five using a potato is not racist, guys. Just so you know, Peter, you can confirm that's what an Irish high five is. 
Throwing a potato at your face. Yeah. I wonder how many potatoes he like. I wonder if he's ever thrown something under one of his riding mowers just to see if it Explode. would like shoot out somewhere. <laughs> no. Wow. He hasn't. I'm, we don't know that. You don't know that. Dude, it's <laughs> Ireland. They do not, He showed me Father Ted, and I'm telling you, if anything in Ireland is based off of so, that show, or if that show's based off of Ireland. I binge watched that whole thing. It's fucking hilarious. It's so funny. It's so good. And it's so weird. But it's great. <laughs> I'm telling it's you. It's only weird because you're not Irish. There's nothing else to do in Ireland, so he's probably trying it. The episode where they have the carnival, and it's like this... <laughs> This is like this little kid twirly and the old guy's pushing it and then there's a swing and like that's it. Oh, man, that's <laughs> carnival. So good. Um, but anyway, uh, also reach us on Facebook. Jess rolled her eyes when I said Twitter is a good way to reach us. Probably Facebook messaging. Or through the website. <laughs> or through the website, thenewutah.com. Come straight to me. Um, you can email us from the website. Uh, and then uh, also the website's a great place to go to see bios, to see. Um, <laughs> Jess has a look on her face. That's because they're all up now, finally. Um, so to see bios of us, if you really give a shit about. All the bios are up, yes. And then uh, to see one things. A uh, lot of people want to see those. Uh, there's, you know, if you have someone coming to Utah and you're like, I don't know what to have them go do, and you listen to this show somehow magically, um, and don't have an idea, just go to our website. There's tons of stuff on there. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think that's going to do it. Go vote, people.